Welcome to the Edlow Podcast. Hello, Joshua Shea. Hello, Mr. Edlow. <laughs> thanks for thanks for coming on. Um, really appreciate it. Um, I I'm I say this on every podcast. Uh, I'm really excited to have you on. We've never met before, but reading your uh, your profile and looking you up and seeing your stuff, we got a lot to talk about on a on what I think is a, is a pretty heavy topic to a lot of my mm-hmm. listeners. You are a behavioral uh, trauma coach. Stop me if I'm saying that wrong, but a behavioral betrayal coach. trauma coach. Yeah, betrayal trauma coach for uh, specifically dealing with addiction. Porn addiction is kind of where you really hang your hat. Is that true? Yep. The while I can see anybody for any type of betrayal trauma, ninety-five percent of my betrayal trial trauma clients start as the partners of porn addicts and 95% of them are women. Oh, wow. That's interesting. So, um, you deal more with the, the people who've been betrayed more than the porn addicts at this point. It's about 50, 50. Okay. Okay. And so, and you would say overwhelmingly the addicts are men. Absolutely. Absolutely. Do, do you do you see any um, we're going to dive right into this part and we'll jump around a little bit, I think. But um, do you see any women? Yes. Yes. Okay. And I think that it is still very taboo for women to reach out for help. I think that there are a lot of women who probably have the problem and don't quite know it or haven't put their finger on it yet, because I can say both with the current clients I have in the previous uh, female clients I've had, one of the first questions is, I don't even know if I have this. Mm. Uh, you know, it, it, am I an addict? Is, is it different for a woman to be an addict than a man? Um, you know, I, I, they're looking almost for a diagnosis um, mm. at first. And you know, with the exception of one of the symptoms, uh, the symptoms of pornography addiction are the same for, for man and woman. That was what I was going to ask is, are, do you find, one of the questions I, I really, we could go for men and women, do you notice that there are certain characteristics about people who are addicted to porn that you find? Yes, they all breathe oxygen. And, <laughs> and that's about it. Anybody who believes there is a stereotypical porn addict, um, I don't know if there ever was one, but I still run into people who believe that a porn addict is the 19-year-old guy who lives in his mom's basement and has never kissed a girl in real life, or the porn addict is that sketchy 65-year-old guy who runs through the park flashing people. And while I'm sure those people are porn addicts, um, in my time in rehab, in my time in 12-step groups, in my time as a coach over the last several years, uh, I have met you know, men, women from 18 years old, straight up into their late 60s, uh, very professional people, nurses, doctors, lawyers, and also completely, you know, vagrants, broke people. Uh, it doesn't matter what color of skin you have. It doesn't matter what religion you you believe in. What really, it, there is no stereotypical porn addict. And I think that may even be part of what uh, keeps some women from getting help is that they believe it's a man's problem. 
Mm, yeah, that's interesting. You know, the other thing uh, I wanted to ask about that with regard to the characteristics is do you find that, you know, I imagine that someone who uh, is a porn addict kind of goes down a rabbit hole, you know, um, and what I mean by that is, is it doesn't start as an addiction, probably like any other addiction, you know, you, you, you start dabbling in things and then it gets worse and worse and worse over time. Do you find that the, uh, the story of a porn addict tends to be very similar or are they all just different? What causes it initially as far as root problems are different, but most people seem to become porn addicts in the same way. I firmly believe that pornography addiction, like all addiction, is just a symptom of a bigger problem. And while uh, the stories do differ as far as what the root cause is, most people get into pornography and have a lot of the same traits of pornography um, use as addicts um, with each other than, than they don't. Hmm. And what are those, uh, what is it that you see that are similarities? Uh, one of the big things is uh, in, in using pornography, uh, a lot of people, as they're using, will be looking for the perfect piece of pornography to finish with. Obviously, there's a lot of uh, self-pleasure involved with this activity, mm -hmm. and both men and women are on a search to find what is going to release the most dopamine and oxytocin and endorphins. Um, so that's a big part, is searching for a uh, perfect piece to finish with. Losing track of time is a big one where somebody will sit down and say, I'm only going to look for 15 minutes and then an hour goes by. Um, not being able to keep promises to yourself when it comes to your use, such as I'm only going to look twice this week and two days later, you're twice as done and mm. you just keep going. Uh, mm. And then the escalation of the content itself where what we might call vanilla or mainstream sexual uh, content works in the beginning, it doesn't work later on, much similar to somebody who's an alcoholic who needs to drink more or drink harder stuff to feel it as time mm. goes on. They build up a tolerance. Mm, I see. So when you say uh, mainstream porn versus, you, you mean like the, the one man, gets... One man, one woman having sex is very mainstream people going to the bathroom on each other is not. Oh, I see what you're saying. So it gets kind of, for lack gets of a better extreme. term, kind of, kind of extreme and weird. Yeah. Right? Like kind, of, kind of odd stuff. I don't want to say Absolutely. weird. I don't know. I guess everybody's got their own thing. I had somebody, I had a uh, a lady who came on anonymously. We, we call her polyamorous Ruth, who talks about, uh, she, she had a long discussion about being polyamorous with her husband. And she had this phrase that some of my listeners loved, which was, uh, I don't want to yuck anybody's yum. And so sorry if I yucked anybody's yum there when I said it was weird, but you know, um, see the, 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 what I've had to learn is to stop saying weird, to stop saying crazy and to use the word uncommon. Ah, okay. That's better. Yeah. So, um, uh, with regard to this then, uh, particularly porn addiction. And I know, well, let's just get it out there. I mean, you are a, a recovering or a recovered rather porn, porn addict, correct? 
Yes, I am, as of the time we're recording this, uh, two days ago was my nine-year anniversary from both pornography and alcohol. Oh, well, congratulations. And, and Thank I've you. Been, I've been pretty... Um... I've been pretty uh, public about this. My father is over, I'm not quite sure the timeline now, but he's over 25 years, uh, he was a drug addict and over 25 years sober. And uh, it's amazing over the course of that time. And you probably have noticed this too. Uh, it was really interesting because for him, you know, I like what you said earlier about addiction where you said um, that it's, it's a bigger problem. And he, there's a bigger problem than just the porn, right? And Absolutely. I think that goes with any addiction is it's just an unhealthy coping mechanism of dealing with stuff that, if, that you have a hard time dealing with. And, and so when he came out of rehab, it was almost like <laughs> my dad was like, it was like dealing with another teenager for a little while, you know, because he just, yeah. his his emotional maturity was kind of stunted at the time when he started using. And, and he had had you know, bouts of it. It wasn't like he was continuously using it the whole time. But, and so uh, it's amazing the growth when you stick to it and you work hard, the growth. He's a completely, I have a, I have a sister who's 21 years younger than me. And, uh, and she had a completely different father than me. Um, yeah, it's just I'm so sure. interesting to, to see. Um, you know, he, she was almost like a second chance for him. Uh, and uh, him and him and my mother are still together. They've been together now, I mean, a uh, long time. Um, At least and, 21 uh, years. Exactly. <laughs> and I understand that your wife, you know, you you uh, you had a pretty significant rock bottom and you, you're still with your wife. Yep. Is that right? Yep. That's, she, uh, thankfully, she understood uh, addiction. And she understood that my addiction was not necessarily a moral failure. It was it was not because I was a pervert or an evil person. It was because I was a very sick person. I was a very ill person. When you put the alcohol and the pornography together, um, I was at the point that I hit my my rock bottom. Um, I was just using this stuff to, to maintain my life. Mm. You know, I, I say if I hadn't been completely knocked off my course of life, I don't think I'd be here with you right now. Mm. I really don't. Wow. And do you think that that's because you, you would have uh, ended up suicidal or do you think you just would have ran so hard you would have stroked out? What do you think? I think that there is a very good chance that I would have committed suicide or a, I would have drank myself to death, which I was close to doing, or I would have moved into something harder with drugs. Mm -hmm. Because to be completely honest, at the time that I hit my rock bottom, I was already trying to find amphetamines um, oh, wow. from people so I could stay awake. Uh, because I was only sleeping about two to three hours a night for six, eight months. And uh, I knew, and, and you can just have so much caffeine. Um, and so I was starting to look for that stuff. So I can, I can see where everything was pointing, and it was not in a good direction. Mm. Do you think, um, you know, it's funny you bring that up. I'm an attorney by, by trade, and, um, you know, our... Uh, our occupation is, I think, right behind dentists and suicide, drug use, alcohol, 
I don't know what it is about being a dentist, but but uh, if you had to have your fingers in people's uh, mouths all day, <laughs> yeah, right. Well, um, but it's interesting because yeah, we run hard. I mean, we we work yeah. long hours. We we uh, we're in a very highly competitive environment where the harder you work, you know, there's a view. I mean, when I'm in trial. Uh, we're, we're constantly sending emails to each other at three in the morning, trying to show that we're working harder than the other person. And, and, um, and so I can see what it is that you're talking about when it comes to that. If you're running that hard you need something to keep, keep going at the level you're going. Absolutely. And I think there's also something to be said for the work hard, play hard mantra, Mm. where if you are working extremely hard and you only have a short amount of time of leisure or a short amount of time to hang out with friends, it's almost as intense as when you are working that hard or mm. everything else being that hard. I can look at times of my life when things were most stressed, where I had the most professional obligations at a time. And that was often when I was hitting the bars the hardest mm. Um, mm. to balance off how hard I was working. Sure, sure. Is there something that you think is novel about porn addiction versus uh, something like an alcohol or drug addiction? Uh, not really. Uh, I really don't. And I, I've searched this for a long time. I mean, obviously, every addiction has its own little pieces to it. I mean, mm -hmm. porn addiction is naked people doing naked things. Um, you know, gambling addiction, you lose a uh, money at every addiction is different, but I always try to tell people that, you know, food addiction doesn't take place in your stomach. Uh, cocaine addiction doesn't take place in your nose and porn addiction doesn't take place between your legs. It all takes place in your brain. Mm. And aside from the fact that there are chemical addictions and there are process addictions, uh, I really don't see that big of a difference between that and every other addiction. I believe addiction is addiction is addiction is addiction. Mm -hmm. And I think that also uh, some of those things that you like, you know, I think when you're, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that what you're saying is um, some of drug addictions are chemical addictions. You know, you, your body starts needing it. Um, but then I even think then you, you also have a processing addiction, right? Where it's a, it's not just a physical, but a psychological addiction to it. Well, actually process it. Chemical addiction is one where, um, the person is just there for the chemical. They are just there for the drug. They don't care where they get it. They don't care how they get it. They just want it. They want the numbness. They want the relief with a process addiction. This is gambling, this is food, this is video games, pornography. This is where the addict is actually a fan of the entire ritual, a mm. fan of the entire process. You know, with pornography addiction, it's not just those last five seconds when you finish that you're there for. Mm -hmm. It's the watching everything. And there's so much ritualization to it, where you watch, the order you look at your websites in, how you, you know, the, the, the device you're using. Mm -hmm. uh, people are very, very loyal to their devices. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, it's kind of that way where, I mean, this is almost funny, but it, it still uh, rings true, is that if I hear a fax machine, I immediately think dial-up modem, oh, there's porn somewhere. Because mm -hmm. for so many years when I was younger, watching porn was on a dial-up modem. No, so man. when I hear that noise, that is like a Pavlov dog response of porn, porn, porn. And yeah. that's part of the uh, 
that's part of the uh, the process addiction. Oh man, and I'll tell you what, kids don't understand back in the day what internet was like when you had that dial-up stuff. That had been man. So no, they don't know they uh, don't know how easy they have it these days. I, I know, and, 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 and I don't mean that as a joke. It's that I couldn't imagine what I would have been like if you would have given me an iPhone at 11 years old or 12 years old, oh, man. I was watching scrambled Playboy channel, trying to see something on our cable system. And now you literally have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years worth of pornography at your fingertips. If you can access uh, the internet. So that's, that's actually something that I, I wanted to ask you about because looking at your, your uh, just kind of, studying up on you a little bit. You were an addict for 22 years, is that right? I was a porn addict for 24 years. I was an alcoholic for 22 years. Wow. So how old were you the first time um, that you started looking at porn? I was introduced to hardcore pornography by an older cousin when I was 12 years old. And you mentioned earlier, like getting into it and developing the addiction. That's not my story. My story is that I saw this and immediately was hooked. I really? wanted more immediately. It took me 30 seconds to become a porn addict once wow. I saw it. Wow. And I, I do believe that has to do with my origin story of the mm -hmm. fact that I was uh, a uh, sexually abused by a babysitter um, mm -hmm. and, and members of her family. Um, I absolutely think that when I saw hardcore pornography for the first time, it brought back some of those memories mm. and that I, that I had tried to squish from five, six years earlier. And I believe that in the very beginning, it was something that helped me put that trauma in the background. I see. Okay. So, and I hope you're comfortable with me asking questions about absolutely, this. But, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so it sounds like then you were five or six years old when you were, you were essentially molested by a, by a babysitter. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Okay. And, uh, did your parents know about that and all of that when it happened or did you kind of keep that quiet? I kept it quiet because the one time that I mentioned something negative with my babysitter and my mom brought it up, she went on one of her tirades um and i can look back now and recognize that my babysitter she was a morbidly obese woman who was about 50 years old she told the kids she took care of some horror stories of growing up and the abuse she went through that were mm. completely inappropriate for us but that obviously did leave a scar with her she was massively ocd um mm. she had she had some real real problems and i never knew what i was going to get with her and that time that I told my mother, basically, my mother asked her to let me watch a television show, and she forgot to let me watch it. I mentioned it to my mom, and when my mom dropped me off there the next day, uh, my mom mentioned that I was disappointed. And this babysitter was like, oh, I'm so sorry. That will never happen again. It was just a mistake. The moment my mom left, it was like Jekyll and Hyde. Wow. And it was like, how dare you do that? And mm. you, go to, you go to the back room. And the back room was where you went that was completely pitch black. And you didn't know if you were going to be there for 15 minutes or for four hours. Wow. Um, and it just 
being raised in a very, very Catholic household by four or five years old, I already think I had certain body shaming happening to me. Mm. And I think that putting those two things together, the potential danger from the babysitter and the body shaming when it came to nudity or sexual things, um, I, I came to the conclusion it was safer not to tell my parents. Mm, I see. Wow. Sorry to hear that. That's rough. Um, so let's fast forward a little bit. Six years later, um, you have an older cousin introduces you. Is this like a, I mean, I'm, I'm a little bit older. So are we talking like a VHS tape or a magazine or what? It was a magazine. It was some, some of the, uh, hardcore pornography magazines that, uh, showed a heck of a lot more than Playboy did. So that's what I, that's what I wanted because I mean, you being a porn addict of that vintage, uh, you could also just talk about the advances in this because I, I remember, look, we all remember the video store that was kind of not the blockbuster that you right. walked to. And then there was that back room. They even make videotronics. Yes. <laughs> I remember them. Yes. And I remember that the back room either had saloon swinging doors or yeah. they had those hippie beads. Yeah, and then anybody who came through those things while you're sitting there, they would not look at anybody. They had a little nope. black bag. Oh man, I could never imagine that would. I just, you know, I just remember looking at those people because I remember as a kid, you'd walk into those places because by the time I was seventeen, eighteen, like all of those stores had kind of gone there, yeah, gone away. It was all blockbuster in Hollywood, and they didn't Hollywood Video. They didn't have any of that. But, but I remember being younger, and I remember asking my mom and be like, "What's in? What's back there?" And she's just like, "Don't, don't worry about it." You know, and I was like, okay, all right. And then, and then it'd always be some dude coming out with the, with the plastic bag and this big and mustache. Just, just look at, yeah, just like looking, just looking down at the, <laughs> looking down at the ground as he was selling, getting it. Um, but, uh, but anyhow, so after that, you get hooked on it. But obviously at that point, it's hard to get, right? Um, so where, well, where did you, you get know, from there? The, the, keep in mind, this is the, uh, this would have taken 1990 was when I started drinking and there was just one day after school. I don't know if I was in eighth grade or ninth grade that I was riding my bike home from school and I, I passed Videotronics and I there was also a couple of convenience stores along the way. And I would stop. I'm I'm such a big fan of, of uh, cinema. I would mm-hmm. often stop and rent a few movies yeah. and they knew me there. And there was one time, I don't know what caused it, I don't know what gave me the courage, but I walked straight back to that room. Hmm. And they had binders full of just the covers of the of the uh, tapes. And you'd hmm. have to look at the number on, on the binder, you'd flip the pages, you'd have to find a number and then look up on the wall where all the tapes were and find the corresponding number. I didn't do that, I just grabbed two things quickly and then mm. I grabbed another movie or two and went up to the front counter and was like, okay. They were like, membership number. And I was like, 3660. Okay, that's going to be $8. And it was one of those mom and pops who was getting their butt kicked by Blockbuster. And mm. if they could get their $2 renting porn to a 14-year-old, fine. Yeah, they were going to do it. And then on the way home that same day, there was a convenience store, independently owned, and I went in there and I said, "I'm gonna, I'm gonna see if I can buy some beer." And I thought instead of just buying a six pack, I'm gonna be clever, like I've seen people. And I just grabbed four bottles and brought them to the front and put them down. 
Um, I don't know why I thought that was extra clever, like I've done this before, I'm an expert. Um, and they rang me right up, put the, put the beer in the bag, I put it into my backpack, and there I am riding home on my bike, 14 years old. Oh my God, king of the world. I've got four beers and a bunch of porn in my backpack. Man. I am the coolest guy in the city right now. <laughs> and after that, for um, the next two or three years, until I got a job after school, uh, I, most days, if I didn't have any activities, I was riding my bike to the video store and I was riding my bike to the convenience store and I was getting beer and porn and that was my every day for years. I would watch one video and have two of the beers before my parents got home and then after they went to bed, I'd, I had a uh, VCR in my room. After they went to bed, I would take the other two beers that I had hid under my bed that were warm by that point and... Uh, I would take the other porno tape and I'd watch it with the sound off in my room after everybody went to bed. Wow, man. Now at that time, um, and I don't know as far as like your friend group, um, if, if they were also doing similar things or was this something you were trying to keep quiet? Did you have any shame associated with this at the time when you were a kid? I knew I could never let my mom know what I was doing. Sure. Um, Three of my parents, uh, or three of my grandparents, um, were alcoholics, so my parents never drank. Mm. And mm. I think that they led me to largely believe that the moment alcohol touched my lips, the very first time I ever come close to it, I am basically going to be homeless, uh, penniless, laying in the gutter, holding on to a bottle that like in Bugs Bunny cartoons has three X's on it and you mm -hmm. can see the, the odor of it coming out. Mm -hmm. And uh, then when I actually did uh, start to drink at that wedding for the first time when I was 14, it was more like, what are they, they, they don't know what they're missing. This is amazing. Mm -hmm. So this one but what else ask... have they lied about? If yeah. they lied about alcohol, what else did they lie about? Well, I actually wanted to ask you about that with your with your background. I mean, uh, siblings. Do you have siblings? I have a uh, brother who's two years younger. Okay. And so uh, just curious, your household, was it a household that was, um, like, was sex talked about? Uh, yeah, it was very, things? very conservative. My parents were uh, elementary school teachers. Mm -hmm. They were super hardcore devout Catholics. Mm -hmm. um, if... We were watching, if we were watching Rambo and Sylvester Stallone killed 30 people, it was, can you turn the TV down? It's a little loud. Mm -hmm. If we were watching anything and, and somebody's rear end or, or a breast ended up on the screen, it was my mom or dad sprinting towards the TV to turn it off. Mm. Because in my household, it was okay to witness, you know, killing it wasn't okay to witness sex. Yeah. Uh, my parents never walked around in their underwear or naked. We were told not to do that. Mm -hmm. um, it was not a it was not a sex positive house, and I think that's part of what made my experience at my babysitter house so confusing. Was that they did have those kinds of movies on TV. They did mm -hmm. talk about that kind of stuff, mm -hmm. um, and then there was the, the abuse as well, where. 
I mean, sadly, some of it didn't seem like abuse at the time to me because I was so young and didn't know. Sex there was a little bit of an intriguing thing. So I didn't know if sex was good or bad. I felt safe. I felt comfortable. I felt taken care of by my parents. But they gave a very sex negative message. Mm. Then I'd go to this babysitter's house where I never felt safe. I never knew it was going to happen. But it mm. seemed like sex was celebrated there. And it was curious to me when I was four or five, six years old. Um, so it, it was really a bunch of mixed messages for me. Well, you know, that's interesting you bring that up because I got to say, like hearing you, like I'm, I'm hearing this and I'm going, okay, well, you had a very sex negative household. So sex wasn't really talked about, which may have contributed to, you know, your, your porn addiction in some way. And then at the same time, you went to this other place where sex was kind of more free and everyone was talking mm -hmm. about it, but you got molested there. So like, where, where, where's the line, right? Like, I think it's interesting because I came um, from a very different household than a lot of my friends. Like I have a lot of friends that, you know, I'd sit up, I'm a, I'm Mormon. Right. And I have some friends, particularly, um, some friends, uh, who they had some sexual problems. Um, you know, Mormons tend to get married pretty young. And, you know, a lot of the time, if you're doing it the way you're quote unquote supposed to do it, you know, you get married as a virgin and then you're having, you know, and you're told your whole life before you get married, like sex is bad, don't do it. And then you get married and it's like, everything's good. And a lot of people have a really hard time making that transition. Right. And so I think that, uh, and a lot of these households, particularly the very devout ones, I, I hear the story of what you're hearing, right? Like it's, it's not talked about my family. My family was not very traditional. I mean, my dad was Jewish before he was Mormon. He was a, he was a drug addict. Right. So like, we, we had we had Rambo on all the time and all that stuff. And we didn't have like, you know, porn or R-rated, you know, we didn't watch sex stuff, but like, but it was, it was talked about, you know what I mean? Like our, our household, it was talked about. And so I like, as getting older, it was just a conversation that I was used to having, you know, as a, as somebody who deals with, with this type of trauma, where do you think that line is where you, you do have the discussions, but you're not going too far with it. I think you have to read the room mm. and you have to know your audience and you have to know mm. who you're talking to. And, you know, there are podcasts I will go on and swear up a storm and use all kinds of slang language for body parts. And there are others I will go on and I won't say heck because I'm worried that it's going to offend and everything is very clinical. Um, I think it's, and there are, there are clients I have who are the same way. One of the first questions I ask clients is, do you have any problem with profanity? Do you have any problem with slang words for body parts? Mm -hmm. Because if you do, I don't want to use them and make you uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I think that's, if it all means the same and it doesn't really phase you what the words are, which it doesn't for me, I think it's more about reading the audience. Yeah, you know, I guess I'm, I'm talking more uh, probably as a parent in particular because, I mean, my kids are 16, 14, uh, 12, and almost 10. I got four of them, right? And, and I'm sitting there talking to them and saying stuff like, you, you know, we're – you know, a couple of them are kind of past the talk now, but the other two are right there. Uh, what do you think for a parent? How, how do you broach this topic with with a kid? 
The most important thing that I think parents have to recognize is that this is not the birds and the bees speech. Mm. This is the, I don't want you to smoke cigarettes while you're young or in our house. I don't want you to drink alcohol while you're, while you're young or in our house. When you're an adult, this is an adult thing. You can make your decisions then, but we don't do this here. And I think you can start being very age appropriate at a young age. Mm -hmm. I think at four years old, five years old, you can say to them, you know, you don't ever let anybody look at what's under your clothes or under mm -hmm. your swimsuit. And you don't ever look at anybody else. And mm -hmm. you, you certainly don't let anybody take any pictures of you, what's under your swimsuit. Mm -hmm. And you don't ever do that to anybody else. And there's the lesson for four years old. Mm -hmm. And maybe when they're six years old and they've started to go to school, you can say, well, you know, you may see on a friend's phone or a friend's tablet uh, some naked people without their clothes on. And if you see that, can you either let me or a teacher know? Because kids aren't supposed to see that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And yeah, a 15-year-old kid would look at you and laugh, but a mm -hmm. five or six-year-old kid actually wants to do the right thing, actually yeah. wants to learn. So I think yeah. if you can instill some of the basics at that point, and you can make it a little bit more age appropriate as they get older. And mm -hmm. I think personally that every 12 and 13 year old boy should be told about porn induced erectile dysfunction, that mm -hmm. if you watch so much pornography, you literally can get to the point that your penis breaks and doesn't mm -hmm. work the way you want it to. And that's scary. And I think that might scare some of these kids into delivering lower pornography addiction rates to us. Mm -hmm. Because the problems are the problem is really with the uh, population that doesn't remember a world before high speed internet. Mm -hmm. That's yeah. that that was the before and after. Mm -hmm. um, that is the demarcation line of when this got serious. Yeah, I'm, I'm an old school porn addict, but mm -hmm. the amount there are today are ridiculous. I mentioned porn induced erectile dysfunction. When I was 20 years old, average erectile dysfunction rates for, for guys my age were two to 4%. Mm -hmm. Now, guys who are 20 years old, the average erectile dysfunction rates are 20 to 25%. Wow. And, and, they've, and, and they've correlated that to porn use? Absolutely, because it's, it's I, I can't imagine it would be anything else. And people, sure. people have looked at other things and can't find anything. Mm -hmm. And the reality is, it's, it's, you know, I've said this a million times, but my, the amount of porn my great-grandfather saw in his lifetime, I could see in one afternoon. Mm -hmm. And the next mm -hmm. afternoon, I did it again. And the next afternoon, I did it again. And the next afternoon I did it again. Well, there are kids now who can, you know, who are 14, 15 years old who can see more porn or more uh, explicit pornography mm -hmm. than I ever could. I mean, re remember, if I'm 15 years old and I get a Playboy magazine, there's a finite amount of pictures in that magazine. Sure. And they, they were not hardcore over the top freaky other lifestyle uncommon sort of stuff right it was pretty much you know mainstream sort of artsy um mm -hmm. 
sort of sort of artsy. Yeah, I read well, it. I read it for the articles. To what the other magazines were out. There. Yeah, I read uh, it for the articles, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, I actually did like the cartoons in there, um, but <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's. I think that, and that's what I worry about with kids today, because literally, if you can spell man, sex, and woman, you can watch it. Yeah. And that's, that's the thing not that, the that's... case when I was 11 years old. So I think I think the number one thing for parents is to recognize they have to say something. You cannot porn proof your kid. I don't care how many filters you put on. It's not a matter of if your child is going to see porn. It's a matter of when. And if if little Johnny on the bus shows them the latest, you know, bad stuff from the internet on his phone. What is your kid going to do? What is your kid going to say? If you don't know, you have not porn proofed your kid. You've just shoved your head in the ground. Wow. Yeah. You know, it's it's funny. I can remember there was a time when me and a friend, uh, this was right when the internet had kind of become, you know, it had started to become prevalent in um, in school. I did not have internet uh, at home and neither did my friend. And so we went to a local library and kids libraries were places that used to have books and you, you, they st- I think they still exist, but you go in there and they, you know, that's where you did your homework. Right. And so we went there to do this, this, uh, class, uh, project together. And we started, it was like Yahoo dial up, uh, mm-hmm. search engine. And so as a joke, I just wrote in poop. Right. Just because I was like 16 and I just thought it was funny. Right. And so I. I hey, the premise poop. is funny to me. So. Yeah, yeah. Right. So I hit, I hit poop and I hit the button and the pictures that came through that was it was not, you know, it was porn. Right. And we freaked out and like and because, you know, we're in a public place. Right. And so we like we we X out of it and we're like, oh, my gosh, you know, I remember then thinking to myself, I'm like this is different. You know what, what I mean? Like what it, gate to hell did I just open? Well, well, I just realized it was like, Oh my gosh. Like, uh, it was scary to me at that point because there was yeah. no, we were just being stupid kids. It was like Adam Sandler humor. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, and, exactly. and, we, and, and we just, and we stumbled upon it and it's so much more prevalent now than it even was then. I mean, um, I think every, Every kid now can expect that they're going to have just as sure as there's going to be a situation where they're they're offered marijuana. There's going to be a, they're going to have an experience with porn, whether they they meant to or not. It's going yes, to happen. Exactly. And, you know, and exactly. what I what would you say to somebody? There's probably somebody who's listening to this. And they would say, ah, porn addiction, um, sure, you know, that happens, but that's not me. And that's really rare and really, you know, this is just kind of a shaming thing. Porn really isn't that bad. Uh, What would you say to that person? I hope that you are able to maintain that ignorance for the rest of your life and never find out the truth. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, um, do you think... I mean, you're, you're a recovering porn addict, and I do want to go through your story, but uh, as a recovered porn addict, do you think that there is a, a, well, first, do you think there's a healthy way to use porn? 
No. And I say that because I have probably read over 150 studies about pornography, <laughs> whether it's about how it affects kids, how it affects married couples, what it means for aggression. I mean, all kinds of studies all over the place. I have never read a study that concludes looking at pornography can be healthy. The best I can say is that there is a population out there to which pornography and their use and their ability to moderate their use makes it not unhealthy. Okay. Meaning it, there's a way for them to use it without becoming addicted. Maybe? Exactly. Just exactly. Just like there are people who can go and have one or two beers and call it a night. Um, I can go into a casino. I win 50 bucks, I lose 50 bucks, whatever, I leave. Mm -hmm. I don't have the gambling addict gene. I understand how it could happen, mm -hmm. but I don't have that running through me. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I'm okay with gambling, but I understand there are a lot of people who aren't, much like with pornography. There are far more people who can handle it than can't. Mm -hmm. But we're not even educating people in this world that there's a possibility that they won't be able to handle it and it'll lead to health issues. Well, yeah, and also, you know, when I've, I've talked to some people about this and they've given me that, they go, well, you know, that's a smaller segment of the population. And I go, well, that's true. Hey, um, how many people who smoke get lung cancer? Studies show it's 10 to 20% and we slap yeah. a, a label on every box, yeah. you know? Um, so um, now going into that, you mentioned porn um as being unhealthy maybe not addictive but what are some of the things that uh that happen even if you're not addicted when you have i would say what maybe ritual porn use yeah um what would you say are some of the things that the dangers of affecting your relationships um i would say the biggest issue with non-addicts is the kids uh, the teenagers. Uh, there are so many young men and young women watching pornography and getting their cues and their education about sex from it mm -hmm. and not realizing those of us who have been in healthy relationships or healthy sexual relationships understand that pornography is not a documentary. We understand it's not a reality show. But if you're 14 years old watching, you know, what what is usually massive aggression towards a female, that's in almost every porn, um, you might believe that's real. You might believe that women want to be thrown down. Women want to be called nasty names. They want to be bent in every direction, not to mention some of the more exotic things that happen that most women don't actually want to have happen in their life. What... Um, is happening now and I found this out at a, a health seminar that I went and spoke at it was, it was at the health center at a college here in Maine um, I spoke to a woman's sexuality group and I gave my whole song and dance routine and I did the Q&A and one of the women and this was this was before the uh, pandemic uh, one of the women raised her hand and said have you heard about women our age she was probably 19 or 20 have you heard about women our age not wanting to have sex with virgin men? And I said, well, I know there's an incel culture. I know that there's, you know, a bunch of angry guys out there who think that girls are stuck up and, you know, have it out for them. 
Um, but I don't know much about this. Why? And then, and she explained it to me and all the other, all the other young women in the room were like nodding. And I was like, okay, this is time for me to learn mm -hmm. what they find is happening at the early college level, at least a few years ago. And I've, I've interviewed a lot of, uh, uh college women since then who have, uh, confirmed this is that they end up with, you know, with a guy in their room or, or go back to the guy's room and they agree that they're going to fool around or they're actually going to have sex and the guy is perfectly nice perfectly calm and the moment the clothes start to come off or some physicality happens the guy immediately starts acting like a porn star hmm. and women don't want that women don't want to be thrown on the bed they don't want to be called five letter words um hmm. that's not how they want it to be and there were a bunch of women in that room and many women I've met since then who say that the, if they find out that a guy is a virgin, they will not have sex with them hmm. because they don't want to go through some kind of retraining period to have to point out to them that, sorry, but the 10,000 hours of porn you watched was wrong. Hmm. Don't want to be treated that way. So I think to me that that's what's happening generally, generationally to hmm the youngest right now. But it also, like I said, you know, there are plenty of guys who aren't addicts who do end up with porn-induced erectile dysfunction. Hmm. It's, there's nothing normal or healthy, in my opinion, about watching strangers have sex. Hmm. There's yeah. on a message level on, and this isn't even getting into the trafficking and all the other stuff that mm -hmm. uh you know could, could morally stop a lot of people um mm -hmm. it's just there there's there's so much bad with it that i don't think you have to avoid it if you're only an addict yeah you know that's that's one of the things that i've i've always found so interesting about about people who have like a a, a i guess for lack of a better term like a fetish with porn uh, is is that it's just so different than the actual sexual experience. I mean, there's no intimacy to it. There's no, no. you know, there's none of that. It's just kind of two people just rough, roughhousing. I, I, you know, I don't know how else to say it, but here's a question I have for you on that same topic you mentioned, you know, they don't want to be treated like this. Are there, and I have, a, I, have a, I have no idea really, but are there even studies that show like, I got to imagine there are studies that show um, like what the, I guess the best, not the best, but like the top categories for porn are, I mean, oh, like what people are looking at, what, what are the things that are like the top things that, that, uh, the by, top, yeah, the top looked at or categorizes categories by of far, porn. by far on legal porn sites, mm -hmm. the two most search terms are connected with teen or some form of incest. Oh my gosh. Incest? If you go onto a, a, any major porn site, if you type the word incest, it won't come up. That's how they can pretend that it doesn't exist in the industry. But if you type daddy, mommy, sister, brother, step bro, step sis, 
any of these things, you are going to find hundreds of thousands of videos. The the incest fantasy genre, and all these, almost all these videos have a disclaimer at the beginning that these are actors who are not related, because that gets around certain state laws that wouldn't allow for actual incest to be distributed. But it's incest incest fantasy pornography uh, is number one, and and teen uh, pornography is number two. Wow. So I got to tell you, as a, as a father of two daughters, that is highly concerning. <laughs> yep. I mean, uh, uh, wow. And these are on legal porn sites. Well, I, I tell you, though, uh, uh, the, the biggest one, I mean, I'll, I'll, I don't know if you want me to name it or not, but the, uh, the biggest porn site of all, uh, about two years ago, the credit card companies were threatening to pull their ability to charge. Mm -hmm. And so they came up with a compromise where the porn site said that they would take down any video where they could not confirm an actor or actress's age, or they could not confirm that the people in the video wanted to be in the video and, and can, uh, you know, ag agreed to be there. They had 12.5 million videos at the time. They pulled down 8.5 million. Oh my gosh. Because they wow. couldn't confirm age or consent. Wow. So when you say couldn't confirm that they wanted to be there, you mean like they could have been like rape videos or something? Rape video, underage video, somebody was trafficked, somebody didn't know they were being filmed. Uh, all, all, all that kind of stuff where it was not a consensual act to end up on a porn website. Wow. And over, I mean, two thirds of them are taken down. Yep. Wow. And that site didn't miss a beat, didn't lose any traffic. Nothing, ha nothing major happened to it. They lost two thirds of their, of their content. Nobody blinked. And I just saw a statistic the other day. I think this is the first time I share this on a podcast. Uh, I saw a statistic for this particular website the other day that said that if you started watching what they had online and you went backward watching everything just one time, you would end up slightly before the Civil War started. Wow. So that's I, I, lifetimes of pornography on a single site. I remember seeing an article. I don't remember. It, it was years and years ago. But I remember something happened. They were talking about, there was an article about the porn industry. Someone had tested positive for an STD. I don't remember which one. And they had to shut down the entire industry for like a month. And everyone was like, what are we going to do with porn? And they were talking about, like, what are we going to do without a month of porn? And the people who were in charge, like, you know, all the major studios were like, uh, we've got more than enough that we haven't released yet to cover the next month. Like, not a problem. Mm -hmm. I mean, this stuff. So, wow. Like, that is just... So, I mean, have has there been any um, studies that talk about... Uh, has there been a rise in, say, um, well, you know, pedophilia and things of that nature connected to porn? Nope. No connection to uh, no addic no connection to uh, true sexual paraphilia disorders. Okay. Um, no connection to spousal abuse or spousal rape. Mm -hmm. um, 
the only the only weird the only really interesting stat that I'm still trying to figure out these days is that um, statistically less men who are porno addicts cheat on their partner than non-male porno addicts. Yet, if you look at female porn addicts, statistically they cheat more than double what non-porn addict females do. Okay, so just so I understand what you're saying, you're saying that porn addicted men will cheat more, far less, will cheat cheat less than non-porn addicted men, right? But porn addicted women double what non-porn addicted women. Yeah. Wow. Well, everybody's just cheating on each other. Uh, well, I was going to say, we, we can come up with a million theories why that's the case, but, uh, but I, yeah. I don't know exactly. But no, it's, wow. I mean, the, the thing is, it's it's been studied and connected with other things uh, or, or tried to be connected with other things. You can see a connection uh, or some connection between uh, other sexual issues like uh, exhibitionism mm. or voyeurism. Um, some of the other things that are considered uh, sexual uh, disorders, which which both voyeurism and uh, uh, the other one are. Wow, man! So let's let's kind of talk a little bit about your. We talked a little bit already about the origin, your origin story, and your first experience with porn. And you know, you went from twelve to fourteen. Um, where about in your story? Uh, well. Before I go that far, so throughout high school, I mean, how often are you using porn? Is it like every day? Does it is it gradually increase? If I had a girlfriend and if I was sexually active with her in high school, it dropped quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, otherwise, if I didn't, it was probably four to five times a week. Mm-hmm. One okay. once a day on those days I did four to five times a week. Wow. Uh, as far as that goes, though, did that come on gradually or was it just always that way? And did you think at the time, were you like, eh, this is normal? Like, what were you thinking? I don't think I wondered at the time when I started in the first few years if it was normal. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think I thought about that very much. Um, when I recognized that I was different, the first time I recognized I was different, I think it was probably my junior year of high school, maybe sophomore, but sophomore or junior. And uh, I was on the soccer team. After practice, we went to a friend's house. And that friend had a VHS tape of some porn. And he popped it in the VCR, and there was like six or seven of us guys there. And they started making jokes and, and laughing and basically playing Mystery Science Theater 3000 to what was on the screen. And I felt very out of place. I didn't want to make jokes. I didn't know why these guys weren't having this kind of almost anxiety reaction I was having. Mm-hmm. Um, that was the first time I recognized that I use different than the other people around me. Mm-hmm. I think that's when I realized I should not talk about my porn use with my friends or anybody else. So mm-hmm. it was something I was already hiding it at home from my parents. But I think that was when I recognized this is something different for me and, and I'm not going to bring it up to my friends. Uh, th- talk to me a little bit more about that anxiety. What do you think that was? I'm not positive. I think it was that 
I think it was that I was probably ashamed or worried that they were going to find out I watched this all the time mm-hmm. uh, and that I self-pleasured to it. Mm-hmm. Because that was still of the time era. Um, and we're going back to the, to the, you know, 92, 93 here. Uh, this was still at a time when everybody pretended they didn't look at porn and everybody pretended they didn't self-pleasure. So you've got a room of six guys. They could all have been doing, they could all have been the same way I was. But mm-hmm. everybody is acting like, oh, I've seen a porn once before. And, you know, this is funny mm-hmm. and this is crazy. How do people watch this? And and I'm sitting there just going like, oh, my God, this is like watching a bunch of people use a drug the first time. And I'm standing on the other side of the room, you know, a, a complete addict of the drug. And, yeah. and I can't admit it to them. Did you feel at that time, did you kind of feel, uh, you, I think you kind of alluded to this you felt a little ashamed because they're all making fun of this porn that you you know you use right yeah yeah and it is i i couldn't fit in with them in that moment and i i really couldn't even fake it Mm -hmm. it just was so it was at such a gut level of oh my this is this is i'm now watching this stuff that is very i don't want to say special but it, it has a priority in my life with a bunch of these guys who are treating it like a joke, not like it's a priority. And that is a foreign way of looking at it for me. It just mm-hmm. didn't add up. So t- tell me if, if your parents were trying to figure out if you were dealing with, you know, you were having this issue with porn, what were some of the things that your parents could have looked for as, I guess, symptoms uh, to know that you're having the issue? I don't think that they could have found anything really. Um, mm-hmm. I don't think I was exp- I was showing any real outward issues, except maybe mm-hmm. spending a little too long in the bathroom once a day. Sure. Um, but my bedroom was across the hall from the bathroom, so I could quickly hide a magazine, bring it in and out. Um, I think you know my parents probably would have figured it out if they snooped through my room and found mm-hmm. the collection of porn that I had. Mm. that no 17-year-old guy needs that much porn. <laughs> well, and the thing is, though, is that right now, like, there is no stash of magazines. No. Right? Well, I mean, a lot of people don't realize Playboy magazine is out of business in the U.S. now. Really? Yeah. It disappeared during the pandemic. Nobody really noticed because no one was buying it anymore. <laughs> wow. That's interesting. Well, okay, so what would you say if a parent today is uh, is – either suspect or looking for symptoms um, or characteristics to see if their kid is, is looking at porn. Is there something specific that they could be looking for? I would look to see if they spend a lot of time by themselves. I would look to see if they had many friends. Did they have friends of, you know, assuming they're heterosexual, do they have friends of the opposite gender? Are they showing any interest in that? Because that's an age where puberty hits and you start to you know, show interest in, in people around you. Um, one of the big keys is mention it. You know, mm. do, you, do you look at pornography, Jimmy? And you know what? If you ask Jimmy, hey, Jimmy, do you swim in the river naked every day? He would laugh at you because the answer is no. If he doesn't act normal and he acts really freaked out when you ask him if he watches porn, that may be a big sign. 
That's one of the big ways that that wives and girlfriends catch their male partners is that if you're around somebody long enough, you get to know them. You get to be able to read their body language. Mm-hmm. And uh, you can you can often tell simply by asking if somebody's dabbling in that. Yeah. Um, I think that it is. I think that it is not. Uh, I think it is wishful thinking if you are a parent and you think that your kid's going to get to 16 or 17 without seeing porn. Oh, I, the, I think, the, yeah. I the think average kid sees porn at 11 years old for the first time now. That's even younger than I was. And I think that if, again, I believe that education is the absolute answer to this question. Um, You know, I even tell people I am not necessarily anti-pornography. I am pro-healthy sexuality. Mm. And Mm. one of the things with parents like mine who are, let's pretend sex doesn't exist. Let's pretend we're not naked under these clothes. Um, when you bury your head in the sand like that, you bury your head to the fact that porn is everywhere. Uh, pick up TikTok, pick up Instagram, start scrolling. You're going to see a 22-year-old girl jumping around in next to nothing. You're going to see a guy in short shorts and great abs, you know, trying to get you to go over to his porn site. This stuff is everywhere now. Yeah, you know, and that's that's... Yeah, you're right. You're, you're going to see it anywhere, everywhere. I think anyone with a phone is going to, you know, you like I said, you just got to type in something in the Google search that you don't even have to intend it and you, you'll find some find some stuff. Right. Uh, I remember hearing a, a friend of mine say, and this is what's so scary, too, is he was talking about um, we, we had come to find out that someone that we went to high school with was went to prison um, for um, uh, exchanging child pornography. And I was talking to this guy about it, and, and he had he had mentioned, he goes, yeah, you know, I uh, I go on um, sites, I guess it's kind of like the dark web or whatever to download, you know, music for free or whatever. Mm-hmm. And he was like, but I'll tell you, the scary thing is, is the bad stuff is two clicks away from that stuff, you know. And, right. Uh, so it's it's really scary. Now going back to you, so you get out of high school, um, you attend college. I attended about two years of college, and okay. then I ended up I ended up getting a job at a newspaper as a full time staff writer that I was in college trying to get. So I just <laughs> left college and went for the job. Nice. And so yeah, I, I read that you have a journalism background, and is this kind of as you're doing this? I mean, I'm sure you're grinding, trying to you know make a name for yourself mm-hmm. in a in a highly competitive field. How does that affect your porn use? It didn't really affect my porn use that much. Again, if I was with a girl at the time, it dropped in frequency because I would have been sexually active. At the times that I wasn't sexually active, it probably, again, was four to five times a week average, maybe a little less, maybe a little more, depending on what was going on. But uh, those early days in uh, journalism when I was uh, nineteen, twenty. Those were really uh, big deal years for my alcoholism because the the news industry at that point, you know, it was just beginning to take shape where you couldn't smoke in the newsroom. And these guys were hating it because they went through three packs of cigarettes a day. 
Uh, it, I heard so many stories of guys having little flasks and taking nips all day long. Um, that was that was when I started smoking cigarettes. That was when I started drinking more after work. You know, we, we would somebody would buy a case of beer and we'd all stand around in the parking lot and drink beers until they were gone. Mm. So it, it, that time wasn't the worst in the world for my porn. It was the worst for my drinking. Wow. And did you do you feel like those were interconnected in any way or do you think they were just two different addictions that you were dealing with at the same time? They're two different addictions, but I didn't realize it. Mm. I thought really until uh, probably about five or six days into my stint at alcohol rehab, which I went to first, um, I thought that my porn use was just a bad choice I made when I drank. Because over the years, I probably used porn, or 75% of the time I used porn, I was drinking. Mm. And, you know, we're sending people stupid texts is not an addiction, but I did that when I was drunk a lot too. Right, and right. Uh, so if I'm just looking at porn, well, that just might, must be an offshoot of my, uh, of my drinking. It wasn't until I was at rehab for alcoholism uh, that my case manager recognized that I had sexuality issues. I had pornography issues. He had me start to meet with a certified sex addiction therapist off campus and this was the guy who made me realize that uh, perhaps most importantly, he showed me that addiction is truly a disease. Uh, and he showed me that porn addiction is a real tangible thing and that I had it. And not only did I have it, but I had it going back to before the alcoholism started. Mm, interesting. The um, uh, So... Going back to this time, then, did you notice? Well, where in the timeline does the internet become prevalent for you? My senior year of high school, 94, was when we got the internet. I was one of the first people I put this way I was the first person I know who had a, an email address. Mm -hmm. I had to mm -hmm. meet people online who also had email addresses to use an email address. Um, which was, it was, I was one of the first 200,000 people on America online, which at one point grew to like 20 million. Um, I was, I was there very early and, uh, it didn't take long for me to find out where you could get pornography online. At that point it was, it was Usenet news groups, which I don't think even exist anymore or haven't for the last 20 years. Um, and this was where you're talking the age of dial up where, you would find a file you wanted to download. You would have to click on it and you would just sit there and wait three, four minutes. And then you'd have to take that file, put it through some kind of uh, file adapter so it could actually become viewable. And then it, there it was, you know, seven minutes after you started, there's your one single naked picture. Oh man. Yeah, well, if it downloaded in four minutes, you had some fast internet back then. No, I. Uh, it's funny you bring this up because, uh, you know, the, we talking about the internet. I just a complete aside. I remember uh, when I left. For, so I le I served a mission for my church from two thousand to two thousand two, and we did not have internet in my home uh, at all before I left on my mission. And then when I came back and stayed with my parents, when I came back, they had had internet. 
And so uh, I, you know, I got an email address when I came back. And I can remember the first time I met a girl at a church dance. And she was like, I go, hey, um, can you, um, you know, why don't you give me your phone number? And she's like, well, why don't you just give me your email address and I'll, I'll, I'll just uh, add you on my, I think it was like uh, AIM list. or something, like an IM thing or something. Yeah. And I remember being like, that's so weird. <laughs> and it was like, I don't want to talk to you anymore. <laughs> you yeah. know, I was like, that's so weird. Now that's, I mean, that's everybody. It's texting and instant messaging and, and all that stuff. Well, so. and now we don't have any phone books or encyclopedias or travel agents or yeah. any of this stuff that you explained yeah. to a 15-year-old what it was. Right, right. So so do you find as your as the internet increases, does that, uh, does anything, either frequency and frequency or the different types of porn are you exploring differently as internet is becoming faster and becoming more a part of our lives uh in the very beginning of the internet um it was nowhere near as uh fine-tuned as it is now there were not sites that slickly had videos because it was hard to show videos in the beginning they Most were all pixelated was, yeah, it was still yeah. it was still pictures. As speeds got faster, you know, you started to see some videos. And I think what it really was for me first was that the amount of porn I could consume in a given time really went up. Mm-hmm. It wasn't that I started to get into very weird genres until later on. Yeah. And I you know, you may not be the person to ask this, but I just wonder how are they making any money? I mean, how, how is the porn, you know, I, I understand when they had magazines and videotapes, how they were making money. I mean, are they making money on ads? Oh, ads, uh, huge ads are okay. ads caught pay so much for stuff on porn. Huh. Exactly. Yeah. And wow. things, and there are, you know, sites where cam sites, there are sites where you can go up as a model and show your own stuff. Oh, you know, right. I've heard it, about OnlyFans, right? That's, absolutely yeah. OnlyFans. Mm-hmm. And, and there, are, there are many other OnlyFans knockoffs now. Mm-hmm. And this is how a lot of the sites can make their money. Advertising is a big deal. Sometimes they charge people to upload uh, content. You know, if, if you're like a Pornhub and you can reach 18 million people in a month, uh, it's worth something to a pornographer to get their video up on your site and then for them to tag on a commercial for you to go to their website at the end of that video. So, mm-hmm. yeah, don't worry. They're all still making money. Uh, yeah, I just wonder. I was like, you know, because I know that uh, for a while, you you know, there was like pay sites and things like that you could do. And then I'm just wondering now everything is it's got to be free. So it's you it's, know. it's it's very cheap. But you got to realize also for the bulk of pornography being in what we consider modern day media, um, you had to go to a theater or you had to go to a store to purchase it. And at that point, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, first part of the 90s, they targeted a straight white male audience Mm. because they knew they could make money with them. When you think about it back then, there was probably only a couple hundred porn stars and they were all in California working for a handful of companies and it costs, you know, they, they made, they actually made better money back then than they do now. Mm. And 
you had to shoot on real film. You had to develop that film. You had to make copies. You had to distribute them out to the theaters. There was the theater taking in their money. Then that money going back to the distributor, finally going back to the creators. And it was such a, a it, it was like real Hollywood. It was a very convoluted, expensive thing. So they had to go after the audience to who, who they knew would watch this stuff. These days, it costs so little to make porn. It costs so little to distribute porn that porn creators can now target people. They can target the white woman. They can target the lesbian. They can target the black man. They can target the person of faith. They can target the person who has some really weird fetishes because you don't have to make as much money to make money in pornography now. You and I, being thousands of miles apart, could tomorrow we could start casting a movie we could have people shooting their own movie and sending us the film we could have it edited by the end of the day and up on a site making us money in one day not being together you and i could direct and produce a porn movie and start making money that's not the way it was 20 years ago and when you think about the delivery of it well you hear stories from guys like, oh, I'd have to sneak into the adult bookstore and you know get something in a brown paper bag and, and get out and hope that nobody saw me leaving the, the adult bookstore or the theater. Well, women didn't want to go in those places. And a lot of people didn't want to go in those places. Now that you can sit at home and press a few buttons and get that material, there's so many more people consuming it. Wow. Yeah. Man, well, yeah. So now another thing that you might uh, that I've heard people say, um, particularly guys, and you know, this is what I think is so scary. You know, I, I told you off air. You know, being a Mormon, I know that um, you know there's a lot of discussion about issues with regard uh, in in high demand religion in general um, of porn addiction. Um, even so, more so that the Mormon churches created a, a porn addiction recovery group of their own, you know, to try to mm -hmm. try to curtail some of it. And I've heard some people who who um, use say things along the lines of, oh, well, everybody, everybody looks at porn. Everybody's a porn addict these days. What would you say to someone like who says that? So what are we going to do about it? Yeah. If you think everybody's a porn addict these days, well, you're probably a little high, but you're not that far off. What are we going to do about it? Yeah. And, just, and because, the thing is, just because everybody has something doesn't mean it's not dangerous. Didn't we learn that during the pandemic? Yeah. Yeah. What do you think, uh, you know, obviously porn addiction is is dangerous, but what do you think the main dangers are that you need to be aware of with this addiction? What do we do? What, do, what should we be scared of? The way that it warps people's sense of sexuality. Mm -hmm. um, number one, uh, the fact that it usually leads to bad places. I mean, ad addiction in general, addiction usually ends with you losing your family or friends, you losing all your money, you losing your professional life, you getting in some kind of physical or mental tr uh, uh, problems or problems with the law. Mm. After that, where do you go? You either go to recovery or you go to an early grave. Mm -hmm. And that's true with porn addiction as it is with every other addiction. Mm -hmm. It is 
very unhealthy for your mind. You literally cause brain damage using too much of this stuff. Mm. Um, well, let's talk a little bit more about as you're as, as you're getting for going forward. Now, when about in the timeline do you get married? I got married when I was uh, 27 years old. So okay. I had been using porn. I'd known my wife for three years at that point, I think. And I had been, uh, I knew her for three years. I'd been using at that point for, I think, 12 or 13 years. Mm, okay. And did she, uh, as you're dating, did she have any idea that you were into porn or that you were addicted to porn or? She had the idea that boys will be boys and guys watch some porn. Um, she didn't, she wasn't a prude. She wasn't a, you know, religious person or somebody who was uh, freaked out by it. She didn't watch it herself. We watched it a little bit together, although I found that very uncomfortable. Um <laughs> But no, she didn't have an idea because I didn't want her to be part of that life of mine. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What made it uncomfortable watching it with your wife? Is it just because you'd been doing it yourself for so long and there was a shame component? No, it was just so foreign. Mm -hmm. This is a solo activity I do alone. Uh, whatever it is I was getting out of it, I mean, I guess the, the dopamine, mm -hmm. what I was getting out of it, I did on my own. And... Here, here's the thing that a lot of people I don't think recognize about porn addicts. Mm -hmm. I did not use pornography because it was sexually exciting. Or I did in the very beginning. By the time I was probably in my 20s, it was a maintenance thing. I needed the chemicals. I didn't mm -hmm. care what was on the screen most of the time. As long as it could get me off, I, you know, I don't care if, what the nationality of the woman is on the screen. I didn't even care if it was a woman on the screen because I wouldn't remember what was on the screen two minutes later. Mm. All I wanted was whatever was going to do the trick. Mm. So to me, having, having uh, relations with my wife, that scratched very different itches mm -hmm. than the pornography addiction did. Mm -hmm. uh, it's kind of interesting when I sit and talk with the... Uh, betrayal trauma clients that I have, part of me, you know, says to them, I think you may even be slightly lucky in your position because you're talking about a partner who has an actual uh, medical problem. He has the disease of addiction. What if he didn't? What if he just liked to look at porn? Why did, well, why did he, why does he like to look at porn as a substitute for sex? That's why most people look at it as a surrogate for sex um, with nothing wrong with them mentally. Mm -hmm. At least your guy has a problem. You can point to a medical problem he has. He's not just, you know, a butthead. He's not mm -hmm. just a guy who lies to you and, and, and does whatever he wants behind your back. You know, the guy who is not an addict and is looking at porn after his partner has said not to, I think is a far more reprehensible person than somebody who is addicted to it. Mm. Because I know that the addict is not there for the TNA. Mm -hmm. The addict is there for the dopamine and the oxytocin and the serotonin and all those, all those pleasure chemicals. And 
I've heard from so many men and women who are addicts who say, I don't even like this stuff. I don't even want to use the stuff, but I have to. And it reminds me of listening to, to men at uh, Alcoholics Anonymous talk mm -hmm. about in their worst times of drinking, they had to drink to stay alive. Mm. Wow. When you, you know, the thing that I, that I kind of struggle with, and maybe this is just my own biases with regard to addiction, is explain more what you mean by you think it's better that you have an addict than not. Is it, is it just because you're saying he's sick, he can't help it? Yes. That's a little bit better he than is someone? Not, he is not disobeying you on purpose. He's not mm -hmm. disobeying you of his own free will. When you are an addict, and I, and I was an addict of both alcohol and porn, if mm -hmm. I could not get either of them, mm -hmm. it literally felt like my body was screaming at me that I was going to die if I didn't get one mm -hmm. of these things quickly. Mm -hmm. It was not about the pleasure of drinking and the, the buzz. It was not about, oh, look at these naked people doing these naked things. Isn't that sexy? It was about get me my damn chemicals. This is all I care about. And I will lie, cheat, steal, gaslight, manipulate, whatever I need to do to get my chemicals because mm -hmm. that's my number one priority. Do you think – see, here's the thing that, that I guess troubles me a little bit about that. And, mm -hmm. and, and I want you to educate me on it is it feels like to me when you say that, like it's almost like they uh, um, a level of uh, uh, for an addict. There's almost not an accountability there because they're like I can't help. Right, it, but... right. Okay, yeah, I don't. I don't want it to sound like that because okay. an an addict is still accountable. Yeah, I have seen so many people come back from addiction that I know it's absolutely possible. Mm -hmm. But what I'm saying is that I believe. I truly believe that there is less free will involved mm. with addiction. And if you are just a recreational user, um, you are using it for very different reasons than somebody who is an addict. I didn't use it because I didn't want to go to bed with my wife. Mm. A lot of guys use it because it's easier than having to go satisfy their wife at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. Um, and when I talk to when I talk to these women, what I basically say is because they will always say, you know, I love this guy. He's great, except for this thing. And they they understand it when I say it. It's that either you you got with a guy who hid the fact he had an addiction or had the the seeds of addiction, or you got with a guy that just doesn't care what you think. Hmm. Which one is worse? You know, that's interesting. And I wonder what is worse. The reason being is because like, for example, right. And this is, I know this is a different thing, but the, uh, um, uh, I can't remember if it was the last podcast. I, no, it was two podcasts ago. Um, I had John Meldrum on and John is a guy who, um, he's on the LGBTQ spectrum somewhere between bisexual and gay, but, uh, married a woman and uh, and then engaged in uh, infidelity with men while they were married, and she divorced him. Um, and you know he had kind of hid the fact that he was gay, 
And so his first wife kind of walked away really hurt, feeling as though their entire marriage was a sham. And I and listening to that, I'm going, okay, so like now he's remarried, right? And he's remarried to a woman who understands that he he's on this spectrum, right? And so he um, and he discussed a little bit because he also had a porn addiction that that he was dealing with. Um, and, um, uh, and so, you know, I don't like, I I'm, I'm wondering which one of those would be worse, you know, feeling as though your, your marriage, cause if you hide it from them, you can come, I could see how that could be a major betrayal when you're like, you lied to me, Yeah. you know, and then, and but then it, you, that's 10 years after getting married. Yeah. Well, holy crap, what else did he lie about? Yeah, no, it, it's true. So let me ask you another question because this came out of this came out of uh, his podcast actually. Uh, what do you think about somebody who says they're a porn addict and they're like, well, I still occasionally look at porn and it's not a problem. Would you say that for a, a true porn addict that's a that's okay, or would... you are either not a porn addict or you are not in active recovery. Mm. Okay. No, it's not okay if you're an addict, right? That and that's kind of it's, when he kind of suggested that I, I, I said to him, I go, you know, my dad is a recovering drug has been a drug addict in recovery for 25 years, and I doubt if I asked him that question, he'd be like, ah, I still snort cocaine every once yeah. in a while, and it's totally every fine. yeah. At, at, as, at his year anniversary, he should be able to take a few bumps because yeah. he made it another year without coke. <laughs> yeah. So celebrate! Right. No, I mean that's that's stupid. No, it's a co- completely counterintuitive. Right. Interesting. Yeah. So so now let's talk. So you're um, you you hit a pretty serious rock bottom. Oh, yeah, uh, did. yeah. Talk to me about the, so it sounded to me and I, I, I just read a little bit about this and I said, I didn't want to read more cause I wanted to actually just ask you questions and hear mm-hmm. how it went. So it sounded like from what I read, your porn addiction started, um, kind of manifesting and it got, I guess it went farther than just looking at videos and porn. You're actually messaging people and trading videos. Is that kind of how it worked? Or? No, that's that's not exactly what happened. I never traded pornography with anybody. Mm-hmm. Um, what happened was I was in what would end up being the last six, seven months of my addiction. And for uh, two or three months from November uh, 2013, or I'm sorry, from August to November 2013, I went into chat rooms and I would find women who I could interact with. And it wasn't that I I wanted to eventually get to the point where I could see if I could get them to take their clothes off, but it became a game for me. Hmm. What I, what it became, I I didn't want a woman who I'd say, Hey, can, can you flash me? And boom. I I was really, really ill at this time. And what I wanted to do was find a woman who said that they would not do anything like that and then see if over the next two, three hours I could convince them. And this was taking place in the middle of the night. Um, Mm. And I wanted to see if I could convince them to take off their clothes or or, or do something sexual. Um, Mm. 
because it was a big it was a big power thing for me. Um, I have since learned about pornography and I've since been able to recognize it for myself. One of the big reasons that people get addicted to process addictions is because they have a lack of a sense of power or control in their life. Mm-hmm. And at the, the last two, three years of my addiction, especially those last six, seven months, I had no control of my life whatsoever. I was basically estranged from my family, even though we were living together. I was torpedoing my business into the toilet. I was probably taking a shower once every 10 days. I was sleeping two to three hours a night. I, I pulled myself off of my bipolar meds because I thought I could save my company if I only had an endless supply of energy. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And I was drinking more than I'd ever drank before. So mm-hmm. I had all of these things coming at each other at the same time. And I felt very weak. And I felt like a loser during my working hours or my waking hours. I felt like I couldn't get anything right. I felt like my life was going down the tube. The only time I felt like I had any control was in the middle of the night when I would be talking to someone online and I would try to manipulate them into doing something sexual for me. As you're going through this, I mean, I got to think, were there ever any moments of self-reflection being like, whether it be, cause I just, I'm just trying to get myself into the, into the mode of somebody who's addicted. I mean, I, I'll tell you, I have an addiction gene. I stay away from all this addictive stuff for the most part, just because I know I have it. I mean, there's been so many drug addicts in my family uh, and alcoholics that I just, I can't touch any of that stuff. Cause I don't want to, I don't want to end up yep. in that situation. So I stay away. I try to avoid all that stuff like the plague, but I got to imagine is there ever a time when you're sitting there, like you look at, like you look at a particularly like uncommon area of porn, or now you're graduating to chat rooms, or you're like, dude, I am, I am getting, you know, this is getting out there. Do you ever have those moments? I, at the moment, I when I was happening, I didn't really realize I was having them. But one thing that I did a couple years later, I, I got off of social media uh, or I got off of Facebook mm. right around that time and never went back. Uh, but about three, four years later, I had to get some photos that I knew were on my account. So I reactivated it. And just out of sheer curiosity, I went back and read my Facebook messages from the two or three months that were at the very end of my addiction. And some of those things I wrote were very very telling like i remember at one point i wrote uh i'm chasing it it was you know it's three in the morning i'm chasing tequila with gatorade what does a guy have to do to get an intervention around here (laughs) and it's kind of funny as the joke at the moment but (laughs) then you go back years later and go oh my god red flag and a half right right i don't think I, i was too sick to recognize it in the moment but, but you you know it's interesting. There. But I got to tell you though, you strike me as a guy that's kind of got a you know a sarcastic sense of humor. You strike me yeah. as a guy who who would say stuff like that off the cuff, and your friends are probably like, "Ah, oh, that's just Josh messing around, yeah. right?" Yeah. What the hell? Um, he, he's up at three a.m. working on that magazine because he's a workaholic. Right, right, and they're not realizing that you're really you're subconsciously at, at screaming for help. 
Yeah. You know? So, okay. So you're, you're in this chat room and oh, before we go into that also, I've got to think that as you're going through this, I mean, if you're working all these hours and you're doing this stuff, you know, um, there, and now you're chatting, um, I'm sure, you know, your wife at the time would have probably said, yeah, you're, you're cheating on me if you're doing that. Right. Absolutely. So, um, talk to me about the compartmentalization that goes on. Addicts are brilliant at compartmentalization. Mm-hmm. And I was amazing at it because the thing is an addict, you talk about addicts, oh, they're horrible gaslighters and, you know, addicts learn gaslighting by gaslighting themselves first. Mm. If we yeah. can make ourselves believe something, we can make anybody believe something. And um, I think that there, I'm sure that there were times when I had moments of clarity and I recognized what I was doing was completely wrong. But by that point, I could not watch regular pornography and finish most of the time. Wow. I needed that level of interaction with somebody. And there were a lot of times where I didn't even self-pleasure when I was talking to these women. It was about seeing what I could, how I could manipulate them to do something. And I got all kinds of tricks figured out. And I, you know, it it was almost like a, a, it was a strategy game for me of sorts. Yeah. Did you ever have a situation where your your wife uh, caught you doing something or anything like that? I mean, if you're using that much, I got to imagine. Or were you just so good at it? You never no, if you, if, if you can learn how to hide it from your, my mom when you're <laughs> a young teenager, you can hide it from anybody. <laughs> okay. So. I, I took the master class in hiding it right away. Right. Well, that's interesting. You know, I got to say, it's funny you bring up the stuff because of, uh, the gaslighting. Um, I don't think people understand how, and you probably can speak to this as a behavioral, uh, you know, as a betrayal trauma guy, uh, the level of betrayal you feel when you've been gaslit and when you find out, Yeah, you know, I mean, uh, it, it, it completely changes your reality. It's almost like, it's almost like, uh, you know, I'm, I'm big into Marvel movies. I take my kids to those movies all the time. And, uh, you know, you talk about the multiverse, you know. Mm-hmm. It's almost like you've been in one reality your whole life and then someone jerks you into another reality you can't get back to, you know. Uh, I can't think of anything more just just abusive than that, whether you're doing it to yourself or someone else. It's a, it's a whole nother level. You know, it's funny, and this is going to be a little bit of a tangent, so I apologize. We'll get back to your story in a second, but I've just been thinking about this a lot. Do you remember Ray Rice? Yes. You, Ray yes. Rice, the football player. football player. So it was so funny to me because I remember when the first, the first uh, story came out, right, it, that his wife had fallen out of the elevator and they weren't quite sure what happened, and it kind of came out that he'd been that he'd hit the, you know, he'd, he'd hit her, right? Yeah. And so the first thing, I think they suspended him for like two games, you know? Mm-hmm. And then the video came out when he Yeah, when he that, hit was, that was, that was oof, telling. Oof, oof, that was rough. And they banned him for life. And I remember them asking. 
I remember them asking the, I think it was Roger Goodell. They asked him, they said, why after you see the video now all of a sudden it's so bad? And he goes, it's very different when you hear about it. It's another thing when you see it, right? The thing that think that's scary about gaslighting and just emotional abuse in general is that it's, uh, you can't see the scars. No. You can't see the scars. And, um, you know, I remember so many people saying when they talked about Ray Rice, once they saw it, what a monster, what a monster. Well, man, that gaslighting, it's the same monster. It's yeah. the same monster. Absolutely. And, and it, it can it can really rattle your cage in a way that you'll never be the same. And, and so that's what's scary about this compartmentalization is that people do it. And I bet in your mind, when you're gaslighting yourself or whether you're saying, you know, hiding things from your wife, you're not even thinking about what you're doing. Like the, the people that you see, the betrayal, the people you see for betrayal, betrayal trauma, their partners probably, when they're doing it, don't even really think about it. No. And I look back and if, if I would have, if I would have died in the year or two before I was, uh, before I, I started to get into recovery, um, the people who went to my wake would have looked around at each other and said, who are you talking about? Who are you talking about? Who are you talking about? Because I compartmentalized so much of my life. There was my magazine at work life. There was my running a film festival life. There was my being a city councilor. I was a, I was on our city council. There was my life with my family at home, my life with my extended family, my life with my closest friends, my life with acquaintances. I managed 10 different lives because yeah. it was just so much easier to be who I needed to be to those people in that space, in that moment. I went back a couple of years ago. Uh, I found a clip of one of the city council meetings online back from like 2012. And I listened to myself. I have no idea what I said. None. And I have a feeling at that moment, I probably didn't have much of an idea what I was saying but I knew how to fake it. I knew mm -hmm. how to play the game. Mm -hmm. And that's yeah. what I did. I played the game and I, whoever I was with, I told them exactly what they needed to hear so I could get my way. Man. So you're going through this now, you're on these chat rooms and mm -hmm. uh, next thing you know, you get a knock at the door. <laughs> well, that, uh, that's the thing. I stopped these chat rooms in November of 2013. Uh, I don't know if it's that I got busy with the film festival that we that the magazine promoted every year. I don't know if I, I'd love to say I saw the light. I don't think that was it. I don't know why, but I stopped doing this late night behavior in November 2013. So I did it for about three months, four months. Um, in March uh, 2013, or I'm sorry, March 2014, uh, I was sitting at my kitchen table doing some work in the morning before I went into the office and a van pulled up in front of my house and three uh, sedans pulled up in front of my house. And you don't have to be a fan of 70s cop shows to know what unmarked cars look like, right. um, because I think they still get them at the same lot. Smash and, the computers. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> well, and it's, it's like, I, I, I did not know why they were there. Uh-huh. I had no idea why they were there. I thought that the film festival was technically owned by a different company and a different group of people than the magazine. And I had put some loans from one of the companies to the other to float the magazine through one month. And my initial thought was, oh, my God, these people who own these companies with me know that I did this. Mm. That's Mm -hmm. why I thought they were there. I went to the front door and these guys were, I mean, getting out of their car, it was obvious they were police officers. Mm. Uh, You don't wear golf jackets in Maine in March uh, that are navy (laughs) blue unless you're a cop. And uh, it was it was several members of the Maine State Police. And the one up front said that we have a uh, we have a search warrant for your home. We believe that you have uh, underage pornography here. Oh wow! And did I that was, did that shock you, or were you? Yes, yes. Okay. So, so this is where it's a, an area I want to you know just get some clarity on because it wasn't clear from what I read. So, did you have any idea when you're chatting to these girls? Because just spoiler alert. There was a there was an underage child, uh, an underage teen that you had been messaging, right? I talked to her twice. Okay. In November two thousand thirteen. Did you have any idea that she was underage? Honestly, no. But I also prefaced that with I wasn't asking for IDs, and if they looked like they could be a woman, I I went ahead with it, and. If it looked like a child, I hit the button and went to the next one. Mm. This one in particular did not look like a child. And we engaged in this behavior twice. Mm-hmm. And that was the end of it. And I never Is this saw or heard from her again. Never dawned on me that she wasn't a, a she wasn't 18 or older. Uh, but like I said, I certainly wasn't doing my due diligence and, and, and caring enough or caring mm-hmm. at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is essentially sexting. Yes, like I didn't. Sexting. Do, I didn't do anything. Okay. She she took off the two times that I saw her. She took off her clothes and she self pleasured on camera. Ah, okay. And she did you later find out what her age was? Uh, I found out that the first time it happened, she was fifteen. The second time it happened, she was sixteen. And I actually didn't find this out until a couple years after all of this went down um, mm. because some other paperwork was released to my lawyer and, and mm. he let me know. Um, wow. I would have guessed she was older, but mm. I was wrong. Mm. Mm. Um, and you can't just say, whoops, sorry, I was wrong. Right. Um, one of the things I'll say about these police that I appreciated was they took my two laptops and the guy in the van brought them out there. Um, when I did the interview and they talked about having spied on my computers, they said that they could tell I wasn't a child pornography person. I wasn't trading videos. I wasn't trading films. I wasn't going to those websites or those dark web places Mm -hmm. to find child pornography. I clearly had a pornography problem. Right. But they, they, even the DA who I knew said to me, you know, only one out of a hundred guys who did what you do gets caught. Mm. Unfortunately, mm. you were the one. Mm. 
And wow. and again, I'm not making excuses. I'm not saying it's okay. What I did was reprehensible. What I did was wrong, and I deserve to be punished for it. And I I was. Mm-hmm. Did you beforehand? Did it ever come to you to think? Because I mean, if 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 she's 15, I got to imagine you were thinking. 18 to 20, right? Yep. Like, I mean, you're, she's not 30, right? You right, know? right. No, no, obviously so, she wasn't. She wasn't one of those yeah. who was so obviously in her 30s. Right. And so um, as you're doing this, did you ever think in your head, you're like, what if one of these girls are underage or no. didn't, even, didn't even cross no, your mind? Because if I saw somebody who looked underage to me, I went past them. Oh, okay. Oh, so is is this is a situation where you could like see their pictures before you started talking? Yes, it's like if you and I are talking here and we're both on our webcams and Mm -hmm. we both pop up, and if Mm -hmm. one of us decides we don't want to talk to the other one, we can hit a button, and then a different Mm -hmm. person pops up. Oh, okay. So is this your messaging, or are you talking to each other? Uh, they would usually talk. I would usually type. Ah, okay, okay. Interesting. Um, was there any, was it, there was no money exchanged or anything? It nope. was just, it was just chatting to each other. Interesting. Yep. And you didn't have any sense that, um, cause I mean, I don't know, like I have, um, I have people who work here where I am, the law clerks, they're not that young, but they're in their mid twenties. Some of them, you know, mm-hmm. and it's just a completely different vernacular <laughs> than me. You know, do you, right. did you ever get a sense of like, well, this person is really talking young or anything like that? Not really, because, and this is even, you know, more heinous to say, I had kids around that age at the time, a little bit younger. Yeah. So they talked like that. I worked in the media. You have to pay attention to the, the vernacular. Yeah. I, I, I kind of always, and then I was on social media as well. I, I knew how people talked and it didn't strike me as weird. Well, this is the thing that I, 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 we're talking about the compartmentalization that I find so fascinating because yeah, like I have a daughter who's 14, right? And I could just tell you, and I don't take offense to this. I'm sure you won't. But like, if I found out some dude was, was like watching her do something like that, I would be on the hunt and I'm sure you would have too, right? Yes. So it's just funny how you're going through this. I, I just, I read in, in that thing you said, you're like, and honestly, I wasn't thinking about it. And I just, like you said here, you said, if she looked like a woman, I really didn't care, you know? Yeah. And, and it's just so interesting that an addiction can do that. I bet that if you had stopped for a second, you are like, if this had happened, you know, in any other context, you probably would have been like, they, this ain't a good idea, Joshua Shea. No, you know what, what I mean? the hell is wrong with you? This is this right. is morally wrong against your marriage. This is legally wrong. This is ethically yeah. wrong. There's so much wrong with it that that shows me just how sick I was. And when I when I talk about this and answer questions, some of them are difficult because I can't get into that mindset. Yeah, it's. I'm sure. I bet you're a different person now than you were then, and it's yeah. almost it's almost like you look back and you go. Like, you know, I think we all have, uh, when you look at regret, you look back at things and you're like, oh man, what was I thinking? You know what I mean? And you, I'm sure you've had that talk with yourself. Oh, I, I could not have screwed things up worse Mm -hmm. had I taken a day off from school in high school and tried to write how I could screw things up worse. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Man. It was just I, I, I ruined so much for myself. I, I embarrassed so many people. Forget me. I embarrassed so many family members. My company went under right at that point. The two other owners didn't want to try to keep it going. So that went under. People lost their jobs. Um, the filmmakers who were going to have their films in the in the uh, festival lost that opportunity. People who would subscribe to the magazine, they lost money because they didn't produce more issues. Um and then just so many people, it was it was on the news because I was very well known. It was mm -hmm. on the news uh, on all three TV news stations. It was the top story in the newspaper the day after it happened across six columns. Mm -hmm. I could not escape this. The the night that I was arrested, um, we were my family and I were sitting in our living room, still shell shocked. And all of a sudden, a TV news van drove up. And started to do a live report from my front yard for the 10 o'clock news. Oof. So Man. my family goes running into my bedroom and we turned on the TV news to see it. And we left the dog in the other room. So we are literally watching our house on television with our dog in the window barking at the reporter. And just standing there, this is some surreal, crazy stuff. This is not real. No, we're watching it, our we're watching our dog bark on TV because I'm being accused of having underage pornography. Right, and you and at this time you're shocked about this. At some point, uh, did I mean? Well, walk me through that. So you get arrested. You're going to jail. I mean, are you just in shock at this time? Are you scared? I mean, are you? What's going through your mind? First day was shock. Um, my wife picked me up at jail um, and she knew that I was sick. She, she's dealt with, she's in the medical field. She also has had uh, other types of addiction in her family. And when she picked me up, I told her, you know, you want a divorce, you have it. You want the cars, you want the kids, you want the house, you've got it. It's all yours. Mm -hmm. And she said, we know you've been sick for a very long time. Mm -hmm. um, didn't know the extent of it. Let's just see if we can start to get through this. Mm. And then we'll deal with the fallout later. Wow. So we went, we, we then tried to go back to my house and we kept on driving because there was two TV news vans in front of my house already at that point. The state police knew who I was. They had a press release all ready to go. Mm -hmm. So within 15 minutes of me being arrested, all of the news media knew that it happened. Wow. And uh, real quick, I, real quick, real yeah. quick, before you go on, I want to ask you, tell me what it meant to you in that moment that your wife was willing to. I mean, I'm sure she didn't say, hey, I'm I'm with you through thick and thin, but tell me what it meant to you to hear your wife say, we're going to get through this. Well, she didn't exactly say we're going to get through this. What okay. she kind of said was we're going to deal with this later. Okay. Let's get our okay. ducks lined up in a row. Uh huh. Um, and it was a lot of shock that first day. The next day, I went to see my lawyer for the first time. Mm -hmm. And his first question was, Is this? And I went with my wife and I went with my father because it was a good friend of my father's. Um, and he said, Is this a litigation game or is this a sentencing game? Mm -hmm. Which I guess is their nice way of asking, Are you guilty? 
And uh, I said, this is going to be a sentencing game. Mm -hmm. And he said, okay, well, first things first, do you have any uh, drug or alcohol problems? And I said, I do not. And both my wife and my father jumped right in and said, he is an alcoholic. He Mm -hmm. is a major drinker. And I was like, you think so? And they're both like, "Uh uh-huh. Right. So... That was when my uh, lawyer said, okay, what we're going to do is first get you into a residential treatment facility for the alcohol. Mm -hmm. And so within a week, I was out in uh, Palm Springs at a rehab center, and I spent 10 weeks there. Wow. 10 weeks. That's a long time. Yep. Yep. The real rehabs don't have a 28-day, okay, you've graduated type thing. It's very individualized from what I've yeah. learned. Yeah. And so I was there 70 days. I left feeling very good because I had been off alcohol and porn for, for 10 weeks. First time since I was probably 11. And I got into therapy back home here. Um, we started to work on my, my case a little bit. And eventually um, I decided when I started to learn about the trauma side of things that it probably would be good for me to go to a sex and porn rehab. So I went to, in the summer of 2015, I went to one just outside of Dallas, Texas for seven weeks. Wow. So I'm sorry. I just, I'm like, I'm just sitting here and I'm like, what kind of people are in there? Are they all like got mustaches wearing silk robes or like, you know, like what, no, what no, kind of people? It would be nice if they'd given us silk robes. No, it was, it was a cross section. Just like a, just, it was a cross section from people who were 19, 20 years old up to the oldest guy, I think, was in his mid 60s, yeah. men and women. Wow. And, um, you know, when you when you go. No synthetic media, materials. That's a, what do you mean? What do you mean? On their robes. Oh, really? Yeah. So tell me tell me what it's like when you're when you're in uh, rehab for sex and porn. How is that different than alcoholics rehab? Uh, in rehab, they bring all of everybody there. It's usually drugs, alcohol, uh, porn and sex and eating disorders Mm. or some combination of that. They bring us all together a few times during the day. And Mm. then they have classes other times during the day or different activities. And they tend to break you up by your, uh, disorder. And Mm. so, you know, I learned different things than the drug addict learned. Mm. Um, And a lot of times they actually put the uh, eating disorder people together with us because Mm. there's quite a connection between uh, having eating disorders um, and having sexual disorders. Um, And you can read about, you can read about it online. It's, it's, it's pretty prevalent. Um, And uh, so I, I learned a lot about that side of things. And then there was a lot of small group work where it would just be like three of you and you were all from that program and you you would talk about what you did and you talk about, you know, ways you're going to handle it when you go home. Or we started getting into the trauma side of things and I started to realize, you know, what was actually happening and uh, why I had become a porn addict. Because that's really, I mean, it's great to be able to let go of the porn and I when I went to rehab for porn addiction, I hadn't touched the stuff in over a year. Mm. 
but I don't think I was not an addict. I think that I still had the addict gene. It's just that the police scared me to death that they could search my computer at any time. So I certainly was never going to go look at it. Um, When I got to rehab, that was when I started to first understand, okay, this is a symptom of something bigger. What's this bigger thing? And at the at the sex and porn rehab, that's what I focused on was the trauma because I didn't have to focus on stopping the addiction itself. I had already stopped about a year earlier. Hmm. What was it exactly? Was it going back to that experience when you were six that you had to deal with or was there something else? It was that was the main piece. That was the main piece, but I also realized that uh, there was some uh, mental and emotional trauma at the hands of my grandmother, um, mm. who took care of me for a while. After, ironically, after this babysitter stopped babysitting us, she took care of me, or she would take care of me when uh, I was sick and had to stay home from school. Mm. And there was, she just. I love her or I loved her. She was just not a happy, healthy lady. And Mm. she didn't know how to maintain certain boundaries you should keep with children Mm. um, as far as what you tell them. Um, And uh, what what do you mean? Can you give me a flavor of what you're talking about? Are you talking about she just volunteered too much information or do you mean there was? Well, no, here's here's a perfect here's a. Here's the latest thing, and this is this is about two years now. The latest thing I learned that she did to me, um, that I kind of already knew, but I got confirmed, was that when I would go over to her house, um, if I was sick and my parents dropped me off there at the beginning of the day to be taken care of during the day, my grandmother always made me feel like I wasn't as sick as I was acting, mm-hmm. because she would actually say to me, "You're not as sick as you're acting. You're pretending. You could have gone to school." My grandfather would come home at lunch because he still worked then. He'd come home from lunch and he would just call me faker. Hmm. He wouldn't even call me Josh. He'd call me faker. Hmm. I think it was a joke. But Hmm. what happened was I got to the point where I trusted them. Hmm. And I would start to doubt myself about my illness. Hmm. And since then, I have never been able to tell you how genuinely sick I am at any point. Hmm. And I've just kind of known I've had this where when I get sick, it's really hard for me to accurately tell you how sick I am. Hmm. You mean you, you minimize it? I minimize it. Absolutely. Yeah. I absolutely yeah. minimize it because I think, oh, I must be, I'm being a drama queen. Hmm. So it, this, it isn't as bad as I think it is. Yeah, my parents used to used to call me faker, but that's because I was faking. So yeah, see, I, 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 didn't, I, I didn't. It would have been nice if I was. But what was interesting was two years ago at Christmas, my mother had a really bad flu, mm-hmm. and we kept telling her go to bed. She's like, no, I'm not that bad off, and she'd have to run to the bathroom and throw up a few times, and it was horror. She was so sick. I went mm-hmm. to see her a few days later. And she said to me, well, you know why I'm like that? It's because of my parents. And Mm. I said, wait, what did they do to you? And Mm. she was like, they would never let me stay home if I was sick. I would go to school completely sick. If I did stay home, I was made to feel like a burden that Mm. I wasn't really sick. And I was like, oh, my God, they did that to me, too. Wow. And this was this was just a couple years ago that I was able to really understand. Oh, my God, I am this way. Because of my grandparents, Mm -hmm. this was some, you know, trauma, which is another word for pain Mm -hmm. that they put upon me. 
And apparently wow. they did it to my, my mother as well. Yeah, man. So you're, you're going through this. Um, and if I'm not mistaken, I, I read that it's, uh, it took a couple years for your sentence to come through. Correct? Yeah, it was, it was almost two years uh, before I was sentenced. By that time you gone through this therapy, uh, you probably were not the same person. Oh God, no. I was the healthiest version of myself that I had ever been. And I even said that to the judge during the sentencing. I was like, you are not, I just want you to recognize you're not sentencing the guy that did this three years ago. You're, mm -hmm. you're sentencing the guy who went to two types of rehab, who has had thousands of hours of therapy, who mm -hmm. has read over 40 books about this. Mm -hmm. who knows what this is now. And I had a, a bullet list of things that I would do and not do to try to maintain my sobriety moving forward. Mm -hmm. And I know that absolutely helped my case. Mm -hmm. Absolutely helped my case. But she said when, when the judge started to uh, sentence me, she started with, well, I can't let you get away with this. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And she's right. She was absolutely mm -hmm. right. And I, I ended up, I, I got uh, a nine month sentence mm -hmm. and of which I've served six months and six days. And very early on, I had to deal with people telling me I got way too little time. I should have, I should have been burned at the stake. And then I had people telling me I got way too much time. I had no record. I obviously screwed up. I was obviously sick. I should have got a slap on the hand. And mm -hmm. I, uh, after hearing this for a while, I just came to the conclusion that I served the exact amount of time I was supposed to because the judge was the one who decided that, not anybody else. And that was my, that was my punishment. And if anybody has an opinion on it, that it should have been worse or better, that's wonderful. But this is what it was. Wow. So in that, um, now at this point, um, you know, you're two years in, you're getting sentenced at this point. Did you know that your wife was going to stick by you? Yes, because she saw me doing the hard work. Mm -hmm. If she hadn't seen me doing the hard work, I would have been gone within six months. Yeah. So tell me what it meant to you at that time to, um, to know that your wife was going to stick by you. It was a wonderful security blanket, and I had heard so many horror stories of men whose wives or girlfriends would not even listen to one word they had to say. They were mm -hmm. out the door with the kids immediately. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I will also say that I did take a couple of uh, polygraphs mm -hmm. along mm -hmm. the way to prove what I had done or hadn't done. And I think that put her very much at ease as well. Yeah, when it comes to this type of betrayal, I'm sure you you would ex you could t speak to this. Is uh, I'm sure it's the uh, what you said earlier. It's not necessarily the porn or the infidelity per se. It's the um, the not knowing what you're being honest about and what you're not, or if you, if you wouldn't, if you hadn't have taken that accountability, you know, right out the gate. Um, and you know, the lying that is what hurts the most. Yeah. And, and 
I also didn't handle it well in that I gave her headlines of mm. what happened to me. Mm. I would only fill her in when I would get a tip from one of the people I knew who worked at the newspaper because I knew all of them. Mm. Um, they, uh, they would tell me if a story was going to appear the next day. A couple people would. Um, mm. Not supposed to, but they would tell me. And then I would prepare my wife that a story was coming out and there was going to be more, uh, more there was going to be more information in it. And I also sometimes I'd actually get to see the stories beforehand, which is a huge no-no in the journalism world. But there was sometimes incorrect material in there. Mm. And I couldn't get them to change it, but I would be able to tell my wife, that's going to say something that's not true. And mm. that happens so many times that then that, that was proven that they got, had bad information that it got to a point where it was hard to believe what was in the newspaper mm, because, it. and the thing is, if a newspaper is given bad information from the police or somebody else, they just take it as correct. But I bet talking to your wife, I bet, you know, you had been honest up until that point about some of the things that was a little bit easier to believe you. Right. You were like, yeah, this isn't true. Well, you'd said when things were true that were definitely against your interest in the past, right? So, right. so at this point, if you said something wasn't true, probably a little bit easier to believe you. Well, it was easy from day one because um, when I was when I was uh, released on bail, there was a bail commissioner there, and uh, he he set the bail, and he said that you you cannot have a smartphone, and I said, okay, can I have a flip phone? Yeah, no problem. As long as you can't get on the internet. Okay, cool. And he said, you know, do you live with children? I was like, yeah, I live with my two kids. And he was like, well, you don't have anything in your past. There's nothing to suggest here, any impropriety. As long as your wife is okay with it, you can live with your kids. Um, mm. You just cannot be left alone with them. Mm. But the next day, the first big article in the newspaper said that I was to have no access to a cell phone whatsoever and said that I was to have no access to, my, to any children under the age of 18 whatsoever. And neither of those things were true and correct. Mm -hmm. It's not the kind of thing that you call the newspaper and say, hey, can you, can you run a correction? Mm -hmm. um, because, so on day one, my, my wife and my parents and some of my close friends came to recognize that they uh, they didn't always report everything 100% correct. Mm. So tell me then, um, your time in jail, what was that like? I did a lot of research before I went. Um, when I was found guilty, they gave me one week to report. So I went home and basically went to the jail website and read it three or four times. I found other things people had written about being there. I found pictures from old newspaper clippings of what it looked like inside um, to feel like I was, I'm, I'm a research geek. So that's kind of my natural way of doing things. And I spoke with a, I spoke with the guy who was the sheriff at the time, who ironically I took his seat on the city council several years earlier. Oh, so he and I already knew each other quite well. And he took, I called him and he told me exactly what I could expect, where I, I would be housed in minimum security and I would be housed under protective custody, which meant that there was always a guard stationed outside the pod I was in. 
the pod I was in was the one-time library for mm -hmm. the jail. So mm -hmm. we had a private bathroom with a private shower, and we had a pretty big room to be in. There was between six and ten guys there the six months I was there, depending on the uh, population. There was between six and ten guys there. Um, once I recognized I was going to be safe, there wasn't going to be any shower stall rapes. Nobody was going to be, you know, stealing my food and bullying me or anything like that. Uh, minimum security protective custody was a bunch of guys who just wanted to do their time and get out of there mm. and, and behave. So most of us got along just fine. And what was interesting was they knew enough about me because uh, newspaper, they got the newspaper in jail. And the day before I reported, the newspaper did this giant over uh, overview of my entire case. So mm. when I showed up there, everybody in the pod knew who I was. Mm. With and, this in this pod, were you in there with other, uh, you know, people who had had sex charges, or was it just? Uh, there was a couple in there. There was a couple, uh, a lot of uh, drug charges, mm. um, a couple of domestics. I don't know why they were in minimum security. Um, but a couple of domestics, the the sex uh, criminals who were in there with me, it was all uh, non uh, touching uh, mm -hmm. offenses. Mm. It was all Internet, essentially. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, what was interesting was after I was there about two weeks and a few of the guys got my trust or I got their trust they started to actually come to me and talk about porn addiction and talk about sex addiction because hmm. they heard that I was, they read that I was a porn addict. Hmm. And if I want to look back, the very first coaching I ever did was hmm. to my fellow inmates in jail hmm. and trying hmm. to help them figure things out because hmm. they were, they could have beaten their wives. They could have, you know, been nailed with pounds of cocaine. They were more embarrassed about their pornography use or wow. their infidelity and mm -hmm. they didn't want people to find out. Wow. Interesting. So, um, you do your time, uh, no incident, no, 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 uh, incidents of violence or no. The worst thing I saw was two 20, 25 year old kids take defensive postures with each other. Mm. And then a few of us were like, we're going to get you both kicked out of here and put into uh, put into maximum custody. Mm -hmm. And so they stopped. Mm. Yeah. You, so now when you get released, um, you know, what was it like uh, coming home? I mean, I got to imagine your whole world is different. You're like, what now? Right. Yeah. Um, I went into jail in January and I got out on my wife's birthday in July. Wow. And uh, I did not go outside a single time I was in jail. Hmm. You could go outside to the tiny little yard that they had recreation in, but they had one basketball and everybody was basically just sitting around and standing around and it looked horrible. And uh, so I, I stayed inside for six months. That was the first thing that was weird when I stepped outside for the first time in six months. Mm -hmm. um, just being in fresh air and sunshine. Um, 
last time I was outside, it was it was 15 degrees, and now it's 80. Mm-hmm. Um, what was interesting was I didn't realize how much of an influence food commercials had on me on the outside <laughs> until I was on the inside. Because mm-hmm. then you say, then you see the pizza at Pizza Hut being torn apart, or mm-hmm. you know the fries at Burger King, or wherever you see these commercials for food on TV. Mm-hmm. And jail food was as absolutely bad as you stereotype it to be. <laughs> there were some guys who ate buckets of it, but. I most of the time gave it away and I, I survived off what I bought from the commissary. Yeah. Um, that, that was the food was very, very bad. Um, I wouldn't call it hard time, but I would call it very long time. Mm-hmm. I wrote the first draft of my first book there. I wrote two other books that I've never published there. Mm-hmm. I probably read 30 books while I was there did innumerable Sudokus and crossword puzzles. Hmm. Um, I found that the biggest challenge was to stay busy and to keep my mind occupied. Uh, But even the last month or two there, you lose all sense of time. What day it is, you know, the only reason you can tell what day it is because what's on TV. Hmm. Because mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's the Groundhog Day movie. It's the same sure. day over and over and over. You're wearing the same clothes or the same style clothes all the time Mm -hmm. and it's just it's like i said it wasn't hard time i wasn't breaking rocks or you know being burned in the laundry of the jail or anything like that you know it wasn't shawshank redemption it wasn't the wire um but it was just a long grueling haul that i never want to go through again like i i had the message of what i did was wrong before i got there and two weeks after being there, I had the message, it was wrong what I did. And I had that message six months later when I finally left. I don't want to say that, you know, like I said, I, I am totally cool with the amount of time they gave me. Um, and it did serve as a, ter- I can't say it served as a deterrent because I don't think I ever would have done that again anyway. Sure. But it was such a miserable time that. Uh, had I had any dumb plans to use again, uh, jail would have wiped them out. Yeah. Did you have to do any sort of, uh, you know, registry or anything like that? Uh, yep. You... I'm registered in Maine. Oh, okay. All right. Does that give you issues now? Uh, if people come by your, you know, see you on the registry and they give you a side eyes or, you know, throw them uh, through your window, anything like that? My first, the two years between being arrested and being sentenced, I was really scared to go out in my community because mm. everybody knew about it. So if I was going to go out to a restaurant, if I was going out with the family to a movie, mm. we went to the city 30 miles away mm. where nobody mm-hmm. knew who I was. Mm-hmm. Um, enough people know what I do now because the newspaper has, I've written four books the newspaper mm-hmm. always had a small article or, or release when a book came out. When I did a TED Talk, there was an article about it. So there, uh, there were a lot of people who do know what I've done since then. So mm-hmm. once in a while, I will see somebody I recognize, and they'll come towards me. And I'm always worried that it's going to be some kind of 
tongue lashing. And most of the time they actually ask me how I'm doing, say they've heard I've turned things around, say that I'm doing well. Very recently I ran into my high school girlfriend's parents Mm. and her mom came right up to me and gave me a big hug. And her dad came and, you know, slapped me on the back and said, that took some guts to write that first book of yours. Yeah. And the first book is, which one is that? Which one was it that you uh, That first? is uh, The Addiction Nobody Will Talk About. Yes. Okay. And that one is kind of a memoir, right? Just kind That's of a memoir. About. I basically look at the, I look at from the time I started the magazine company till the, basically the time I was arrested. Mm-hmm. Man. So it's about a five-year span. I do look back and t- at the how I became an addict, um, mm-hmm. and I do look a little bit forward at, at, at the very end of it. But it's basically my last five years as an addict while I was trying to get this business off the ground. Now, you wrote you wrote the, um, the first draft of this book while in prison, or in jail, mm-hmm. rather. Um, so did you have an intention at that time to get into the work that you're doing now? I had the intention to write one book Mm -hmm. when I was again, during that time period between arrest and sentencing, I went to a bookstore um, nearby and I wanted to see what they had for addiction books and, and porn addiction, sex addiction books. They had plenty of books on alcoholism, plenty of books on drugs, a few on general addiction. They had nothing for sex or porn addiction. And that was when I thought to myself, because I was I was finding uh, academic studies online. Mm. I don't mind. I, I like academic studies. I don't mind reading them. But I know that's akin to a regular person liking to read Shakespeare. It just doesn't happen very often. Right. right. So I thought to myself, while I was learning about this through these academic papers, there were all kinds of people out there who knew nothing about it, who were addicts. So I thought to myself, maybe I can write a book about how I became an addict, what it meant, what being an addict means, and I can just put it out so that average dudes can read this. Mm-hmm. And at least if they go to the bookstore, there's one book there for them. Mm-hmm. So when I got out of jail, uh, and that, that's when I got the idea to write it, when I got out of jail, I revised it, I found a publisher, and they put it out, and I thought that was going to be the only thing I did. Well, right after that, the news picked up on it, and uh, I was on several news stations in New England, um, and I had and, and on a bunch of podcasts. Um, I had to start a website because that was uh, the, the publisher. That was one of their rules that you have to have a website, and I started getting inundated from wives, girlfriends, mothers, who were like, "How did you get clean?" I have, a, I have a male addict in my life, and I want him to get clean. How did you get clean? And that's when I learned about betrayal trauma. So I, to, I, I teamed up with a guy who I had met named Tony Overbay, who I was on his podcast very early on. He was one of the first podcasts I ever did, and we got along really well. And I contacted him and said, you know, I'm having all kinds of women talk about betrayal trauma to me since I wrote this first book. But I don't know enough about this, but I can talk about it from the addict's point of view, being Mm -hmm. married to this person. Mm -hmm. Could you talk about this from the expert therapist point of view? And he's like, yes, I see these women all the time and I see their husbands all the time. So we wrote a book called 
Um, he's a porn addict. Now what? An expert and a former addict answer your questions. And it was basically 65 questions that people had sent to us or we'd been asked a million times or we found online. And he answered them from the point of view of the therapist. I answered them from the point of view of the former addict. And to date, that is still the book that has sold far more copies than anything else. And after that was done, I started to actually get some speaking uh, gigs and some speaking uh, opportunities. And I thought, you know, if I can get an agent, I can maybe start doing this and, and going to colleges and going to libraries and, and telling people about this. And I can I can actually make a living off of this horrible thing that happened to me. The fact I've got some books out, I can educate, I can help, I can give back because I was really big and I, I still am. I was really big into I need to be a different kind of person. Forget the alcohol, forget the porn. I need to be a better human being. And maybe I can give back with this. Well, lo and behold, you know, I'm, I'm doing this. Everything's rolling along. The pandemic comes. Mm. Suddenly, nobody wants anybody to speak to them in public. Sure. sure. And ever since then, Zoom has been the way to do things. You can go to conferences now, and there are people on big screens on Zoom who they'll pay them one-tenth of what they pay them to actually go to the conference to speak. Mm -hmm. And I realized that if I wanted to continue in this genre of work, I had to uh, find something else. And that's when my therapist suggested that I take the courses that she had to take to uh, become a, a sex uh, addiction uh, specialist or therapist or whatever, whatever it is in Maine, because they don't have CSATs in Maine. Um, so I, I was able to take a couple courses. I didn't get any credit or continuing education credits, but I was able to take a couple courses that true therapists take for porn addiction. And then I had uh, a doctor who I knew who I was on their I was on their podcast. They suggested that I got that I get uh, certified as a betrayal trauma coach. Hmm. And it's, that makes sense because I can deal with both sides of the equation. And since that happened, uh, the last two and a half, three years, I have been basically a full-time pornography addiction and uh, betrayal trauma coach. So uh, someone listening to this, uh, I imagine there's going to be uh, one or more people listening to this who is uh, married or in a relationship with a porn addict what would be something you would tell someone who is suffering from this type of betrayal trauma? Number one, you have to take care of yourself first and foremost. Mm. Number two, you have nothing to do with his addiction. Zero. It has nothing to do with how you look. It has nothing to do with how you treat him. It has nothing to do with how you perform in the bedroom. The seeds of addiction are almost always sown in youth. Hmm. And I was a porn addict at 12. I met my wife at 25, 26. How could she have anything to do with it? Right. That was 10 years. I mean, yeah. I did hide it from her for, for another six, seven years, but she couldn't have anything to do with it. So uh, um, I'm able to tell mostly women that 
as an addict. Mm -hmm. And I think that comes across that I know my stuff. I know the science. I know the statistics. But perhaps most importantly, I was there. Mm -hmm. And I can tell you what an addict really thinks. When an addict says that they love you, they mean it. When an addict doesn't tell you the truth, it's because they're trying to spare you from something. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not all evil motives. Yeah. But when you think a guy is lying to you and that's why and he's lying to you because he's bad, that's what you believe. So I think that, you know, I still have a very keen addict to English dictionary in my head and mm-hmm. I can speak to the betrayed wives and betrayed girlfriends and and in the cases of husbands or boyfriends um, i can speak to them i think in a way that a lot of people can't because not only do i know my stuff but i was there do you find that the men who um who are suffering from betrayal, betrayal trauma have a a different road to hoe or have a harder time grasping those concepts just simply based on the fact that they're men Honestly, I think they're more surprised. They're more shaken by it. They're more didn't see it coming. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that they, they are knocked for a loop probably bigger than the average woman at first. I wonder how much of that is just stereotypes. Like you said earlier, you know, you, you look at you look at porn addiction as being more of a male thing. You know, guys are the ones who are looking at porn. I got to imagine the guys when they see here that their their wives or girlfriends are, are have been looking at porn. Like you said, it's just got to be jarring and shocking. You just right. I never would have thought. And plus, plus you're dealing with all the other guys in the world going, oh, man, you're lucky. Your wife yeah. is addicted to porn. That's going to be awesome. Yeah. It's like, no, n- nobody yeah. addicted to anything is awesome. Oh, here's, a, here's another question I wanted to ask you about your experience. Did you mm-hmm. notice... Um, that uh, uh, intimacy with your wife was significantly different after you'd gone through your recovery? Uh, At first I did because I think there was more vulnerability. Mm -hmm. There was more emotional connection. I don't necessarily notice it now, all these years later. Sure. But... We had a very interesting conversation once, and I ba- I think based on the sex abuse that happened, maybe even based on the porn, I don't know, I had a very vanilla sex life growing up. Mm. Never went skinny dipping, never played spin the bottle, never did a lot of those things that are almost rites of passage. Mm-hmm. They scared the hell out of me. I ran in the other direction if there mm. was ever the opportunity. And... I never really opened up and was truthful with my wife about communicating about sex. Mm. And I learned in rehab and I learned through my studying that you need to be able to have those connections. And my wife said it very well to me. She said, you should be able to ask me for the craziest thing. Mm. And while I may, while I may chuckle, if it's really funny, Mm -hmm. all I'll say is no. Mm-hmm. You know, all I'll say is no. You know, you mm-hmm. know, if you say, can we bring another woman to bed? The answer is no, but I'm not right. going to divorce you and treat you like crap because you're afraid to ask. Sure. 
Sure. And that 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 was a real wake up call for me. I remember the I remember the parking lot we were in when we had this conversation, um, sitting in our car, and it that was when it dawned on me that I was scared to death of sex. I was scared to death to talk about it, to communicate about it. Um, exactly why I think it was all that all that stuff from before. But um, even when I even when I was an addict the the sex served a different beast you were you know you have that skin to skin contact you're with mm -hmm. somebody that you actually love you can talk and communicate during it um while it addiction will do a number on your libido and it certainly did the last few years of my addiction as far as how much i wanted to engage um the addiction and actually being with my wife or any of the women before i met her it served two different purposes, at least for me. Interesting. Um, yeah, you know, it's, man, it's just, what a wild story, <laughs> you know? I mean, just to think yeah, about, yeah. you know, it, there's something to be said about, you know, this is, this, it's, it's, it's amazing. Some of this, there's some similarities to my, to my, dad's story um and and i think it's it's amazing that uh you know sometimes it takes you losing everything to become the type of person that god your higher power or the universe wants you to be and, and and that's a really important piece that's worth mentioning that i have to a lot of times when i talk to men who are porn addicts they hate the label of addict because they're like well if I'm an addict, how does that change me? You know, what am I going to become? Who, 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 if I give up the porn or the alcohol or the drugs, who am I? Who do I become? And I tell, you know what? If you were an addict and you like chocolate ice cream, you're going to be in recovery and like chocolate ice cream. If you were an addict and you liked Adam Sandler films, in recovery, you're going to like Adam Sandler films. And if you're a giant butthead mm -hmm. as an addict, you're going to be a giant butthead in recovery. Mm -hmm. And I was one of those guys with a huge ego. Mm -hmm. I stepped all over people because I thought I was super cool with everything I did in the community. Mm -hmm. And I was, I probably would have classified as a narcissist back then. Mm -hmm. And that was one of the things in recovery. Once I got the drinking under control, once I got the porn under control, I was able to look at myself and go, wow, you kind of suck as a human and you can't blame the porn and alcohol on that. You're going to have to do some other work. And that's a lot of what my therapy has been over the last eight years is who I am as a person, who I want to be as a person and what I have to do to get there. For instance, I don't even know that I could define empathy to you before I got into uh, recovery. Mm -hmm. I had no empathy mm -hmm. because it was the easiest way for me to deal with life. Yeah. And I know because now I have empathy and it, it sucks. <laughs> Feeling bad about things that you can't control sucks. It that... was so much, and I don't want to say better, but it was so much easier when I could just turn it off. That, um, yeah, you struck a chord with me there. You know, I mean, I remember a time, and this is just, this is, uh, I'm embarrassed to say this. Um, I, uh, 
I remember there was a time before I started dealing with, you know, there's been some stuff in my life that that's been, I don't, I don't talk about it publicly, but it's been, you know, it's been a rough, some rough stuff that I've had to, to go through. But before that, I remember I was going through law school and I was working full time and I was supporting a family and doing all that stuff. And I remember being so super focused on this stuff. I mean, just, you, you, you probably sympathize where, you know, I'm, I'm up, I'm up and out the door before my kids are waking up and I'm home after they're in bed, you know, foods in the microwave, you know what I mean? Um, mm -hmm. Staying up late, studying, you know, cause I'm, I mean, I'm trying to do everything. Right. And uh, I remember there was a day I'm at work and my mom called me to tell me that my cousin had committed suicide. And I just said, uh, okay, anything else? <laughs> and she was like, no. And I go, all right, I got to get back to work. And I hung up and I just, and I just said to myself, I remember thinking, I just said, I don't have emotional capacity to deal with this right now. Mm -hmm. You know, I can't focus on anybody else's stuff. I have to just do this. Mm -hmm. And and it's so interesting when you're hyper-focused and hyper-driven. And, um, and you, I mean, it sounds like in that time frame, you were just hyper-driven. I mean, if you're running a magazine and a film festival and in politics, you know what I mean? You're and you're running your own business. I mean, you yeah. you obviously were a very were and are a very driven person. It's just so interesting when sometimes when you get that way, um, that uh, um, you know you 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 forget about everything that's going on around you and how it affects other people. And that's one of the things that I think I'm really grateful for is that some of the experiences I've had in the last few years have really required me to stop and focus on what is most important, you know, particularly, right. um, I have such a greater relationship with my kids over the last few years, just because, uh, they needed it. That's one thing they needed it, but also because, um, I was like, what's most important, you know? And, uh, and, uh, so now you, you found a, a, a work that is more meaningful. Um, before I, I end this, because we I gave, I said two hours and we're already two hours and thirty, but let me, I want to hear what is the like, the scariest story you've heard that has come out of porn addiction from one of your your uh, I don't know if you call them clients or patients. Well, the stories of some of the child abuse mm. that they've suffered. That the, the addict has suffered? The addict suffered. Uh, some of those are... Some of those hit close to home, but some of those are so much worse than I ever went through. Mm -hmm. And I had really high-quality parents. I really mm -hmm. did. Mm -hmm. A lot of these people didn't. Mm -hmm. um, they had no safe space ever. Mm -hmm. um, so some of those, like what actually physically was done to them mm -hmm. without getting super graphic, but being violated by objects mm. by their mother and father laughing and taking pictures. That kind of stuff is really freaky. Um, when you hear that, like I have, I just want you to know right then, I had a very visceral reaction to hearing that. You know what I mean? Like hearing that, I just, I got angry 
hearing that about a young child. How do you listen to that? Like I, as an as an attorney, I I thought I wanted to be a prosecutor. I I do personal injury and wrongful death now, but I remember thinking about criminal defense. A lot of prosecutors will do that for a time and then move to criminal defense. And I said to myself, I was like, no, because I don't, I don't, if I ever went to like a public defender's office, sitting there next to somebody who had done something to a child, I couldn't handle it. I couldn't handle it. On the days when I'm having a tough time, it is damn near impossible. Yeah. But I sit there and I do it. And there's been more than one time that I've started crying because it just hits so close to home and I can just feel that pain. And I can see somebody who is so lost in front of me and I realize how just absolutely freaking lucky I am at this point. Mm-hmm. And if they can have half of the recovery I've had it's going to change their lives massively. That these people have had to live with the, these, these, and some of the stuff that I was forced to do was really friggin' sick. But I've heard stories that are, the, the, on, on most days, I can say, well, I hope you understand that wasn't your fault whatsoever. You didn't ask for this. You didn't deserve this. You know, I try to reassure them and, and, and be decent to them. But on the days that maybe I'm a little more emotional or days that I'm having a little trouble in my own personal life uh, coping with the world, um, I get misty-eyed. Or I, I, like I said, there are a couple people who I've had to tell I'm having a rough day. Ignore me if my voice cracks because this is rough. And I also know the later in the day it goes, the more susceptible I am to that stuff. I often like to have new clients early in the day because I'm refreshed. I'm awake. Uh, The caffeine is still working. Um, (laughs) at At the end of the day, sometimes this does get to you. It yeah. sometimes this does get to you. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I, I mean, I'm not a therapist by any, any stretch of the imagination and I don't know if I have the, uh, the patience, uh, for it. Um, but I do have friends that sometimes call me when they're low, you know, and to be doing that all day, you know what I mean? To just be sitting there and hearing all these people that are struggling, that's gotta be, that that's gotta well, be I mean, I think, r- I think, rough I think, and rewarding. Right. I think like a doctor, you do become, you probably, you not become numb to it, but you wear a certain kind of armor that deflects enough of it that you can keep doing your job. Yeah. Because I need to be there for them and continue to do my job. Um, But yeah, if uh, having a a four session day versus an eight session day can be very different. And if, and depending on what the stories are, um, it can be absolutely grueling. It can, you know, and, and at the end of the day, sometimes, uh, there are, there are days where I sometimes work 12, 13 hours. Um, I will just end up going and basically throwing myself on the couch at the end of the day and 
putting on Cheers or Seinfeld or some other show from the 90s that made me feel good when yeah. I watched it. And I will just veg out and just kind of try to let it wash over me so I can go back and do it again tomorrow. Because the thing is, it's so rewarding when people get better. It's so mm -hmm. rewarding when you see people take a step forward. Um, I've been very lucky with TikTok. I have uh, about 111,000 followers. Mm. Huge numbers. People mm. I never will meet sending me messages of I watch your videos and they've been inspirational and I haven't used porn in two months now. That's awesome. And I kind of think to myself, my addictive years or the first 38 years of my 37, 38 years of my life, I was a taker. Mm -hmm. I was not a giver. And now is the time of my life where I am supposed to be a giver and I'm supposed to help people. And I hope that whatever happens when you die, where whoever the big guy is up in the sky or whatever's standing at the gate or whatever happens, I kind of hope there's some sort of scoreboard. And it says how many people I hurt in this life versus how many people I helped. Yeah. And if at the time that I meet my maker, I have one more person who I've helped than I've hurt, I will be okay. You know, and until then, that, until then, onward. Yeah. Well, Tomorrow you know, we thing, got more sessions. You know, the thing that's interesting about that is, is I don't think people realize um, how many people they really affect. You know, it's, um, you know, we re I recently had a, a coworker who was more like a mom to me um, pass away. And um, she had an amazing effect. And I never even, I never even told her, you know? Sorry. <clears throat> I never even told her. And um, I wish I would have. And, and, and I'm grateful for that experience because, you know, she had gotten sick <clears throat> a while before that. And I'd never, you know, I was I was just wrapped up in my own stuff. I had a lot going on. So I'm like, I'm going to go. I'll go see her. I'll go see her. And then I never did. And the next thing you know, she got really sick. And then she and then she passed. And I was like, oh, gosh, I never even, I never even went over to say hi. You know what I mean? And I was just like, oh, what a dick. You know, <laughs> I was like, I'm yeah. a dick. And, uh, and, um, and, and so... But I'm, I'm grateful for that experience because I'm not going to let someone else pass without telling them, you know. But that's the thing is that she never knew. She never knew, like, to me, I'm a better, I'm just a better person. Like, I'm a better dad. I had lots of conversations about my kids with her. She was an older lady. And I never, you know, I'm a better dad. I'm a better, I'm certainly a better lawyer. She was a secretary here in the office. And I'm a, I'm a better lawyer because of her. And, uh, um. And just I'm a better person. And, and I think about that. And I'm like, man, you know, she never knew. How many people are there out there that I've experienced or I have affected positively or negatively that I'll never know about, you know? And your TikTok followers are some of those people, you know? You yeah, and it's it, it's one of those things where um, 
that's what kept me going for a long time. I, I, I don't know exactly why I've been very lucky over the last five months in that my business has doubled in size twice. Oh, wow. I don't know exactly. I have some theories, but I don't know exactly why it's, I, I literally, I literally could be coaching 24 seven now. Um, but I was not making ends meet for quite a while there. Mm -hmm. Thankfully, you know, I had savings. Thankfully I have done a lot of freelance writing to supplement. Uh, thankfully my parents believed in what I was doing and maybe would give me, you know, a nice check for my birthday. And I knew what that meant. Um, it was the compliments. It was the thank yous. It was the, you're helping me. You're helping my, you're helping my husband. You're helping, uh, you know, everybody. It was those things. That was the fuel that kept me going when I wasn't making very much money at it. And I wasn't attracting a lot of clients yet. You know, you know, what's interesting about that, though, there's a couple things I like about that. You know, I talked to my son, my son's a guitar player, and uh, he's very good. And he's a very good singer. He just he just made I, I brag about him on all these podcasts, all my kids, I'm always bragging about him. But this, this kid, he's, uh, he just made the Allstate here in California, the Allstate choir. I mean, he's really good. He's got, he has his own little rock band and all that. And he wants to do something with music. And I, and I told him, I was like, if you find meaning in what you're doing, it doesn't matter how much money you make. You have to, you just have to figure out a way to do it. Right. Because, yeah. and, uh, and what I love about what you just said there was that, uh, you didn't, you didn't quit just because it was hard. You know, you didn't quit just because you found meaning in something. And even though you weren't necessarily making ends meet, you kept at it and kept at it. And now your business has doubled in size twice. And how long have you been doing it? Uh, Two and a half years. So yeah, it, it took you. It took you about two years to get mm -hmm. to the point, and then boom it. And then in the last six, five, six months, it's it's finally becoming yeah. lucrative for you. That's what it takes, you know. I, I um, you know, I talk about I I'm an avid gym guy, and I tell people I went to the gym for eleven months before the first time I saw a muscle appear in the mirror. You just have to believe that everything you're doing. <laughs> It's going to eventually, it's like Novocaine. It may take a while, but it will work, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and so really, really happy to hear that you're affecting so many lives. Let me, let me, uh, I, I ask everybody a few questions um, on every podcast. And I want to ask those of you before we, we, we call this. The first one is, is what would you say is your biggest success in life? My children. Being decent human beings. Yeah. You have two kids? Yep. I How have old a, I have a 23-year-old daughter and a 19-year-old son. Nice. And the 19-year-old son's a decent human being, huh? <laughs> yeah, surprisingly <laughs> he is. <laughs> That's, that brings me hope. No, I'm just kidding. Um, okay. And then uh, what would you say is your uh, biggest failure and what did you learn from it? Well, there was this one time where I talked to this woman online and it turned out she wasn't of age. I had a feeling I knew where that was going to go. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You want to hear some really dark stuff now. Yeah. Uh, yeah no. Uh, yeah. That, that, that it's, it's, it's funny though, because the amount that I've improved as a person, the amount of wonderful, wonderful people I have met in the last eight or nine years. I'm not going to say I wouldn't go back and change it because I would. Yeah. 
but, and I, I almost every day, I still think about this girl who's now, I don't know, 23, 24, however old she is that I was, uh, that I preyed upon back then. And I hope she's healthy and okay and not scarred up from any of this, but this thing did save my life. It, it being nabbed by the cops did save my life. Um, and I think that I have been able to hopefully do good in other people's lives in the last several years. Um, so that maybe if this is even the worst thing I've ever done, I don't want to say, well, I did a bad thing and now thankfully it's wiped out by a good thing because it's not, they still stand next to each other. Um, but I'm really glad that I took the worst thing that ever happened to me and was able to find a way to give back with it. Yeah. What I find interesting it, um, when it comes to these perceived failures or the things that, I mean, you have, you have a different situation than, than you know, me maybe. In the, like the things that I think about is things that I, I didn't really have a lot of control over. Yours, you had a level of control over, but at the same, it's the same concept in that these terrible things happen to you. And uh, yet you look back and you go, man, that's exactly what needed to happen to get me to the right place. Yeah, exactly. Even, even if it's a situation, and, and, and I think that, you know, being a, a, a Christian, a Mormon, whatever you want to call me, I, I believe in, in, in Jesus and, and the atonement. The beauty of that is that uh, these things, these mistakes that we make can can shape us and we can be forgiven and we can um, turn these things into positives and we can get some relief out of it. And uh, um, even if it's something that's self-inflicted, you know, and, uh, and I think it's great that you've taken this thing and you've realized something about yourself. You mentioned you, you were, you would classify as a narcissist, but I think there's something to be said for somebody who recognizes um, you had a problem and you had to fix it and you did what you needed to do to fix it. And, uh, you know, the comeback is often even more, uh, more enjoyable than the, than the come up, you know? And so Sounds like you're you're doing great things with a, a pretty terrible situation. Um, the last thing, and you kind of already talked about this. The last question I ask people is, um, you know, someday down the road you're going to pass away, and there's going to be a funeral. It's going to be a eulogy. What would you want? Uh, what's one thing you'd want someone to say in your eulogy? That's the kind of question I would have given a lot of careful thought to when I was an addict. For what is my legacy going to be? What are these people going to say about me? Mm. Now, you can put my ashes into a coffee can. I don't care. Nice. As long as I, as long as when I take my last breath, I'm content with who I've been. Uh, the rest of you can have your opinions. Are you content with who you are right now? More than I've ever been, mm -hmm. but I know there's still work to do. Yeah. 
One thing that I find really funny, and I'll wrap this up, is that uh, I find myself often wondering when I'm going to be content. And what I mean by that is I've, I've lived a very goal-oriented, kind of driven life. And <clears throat> I'll tell this story I, real quick. I, I became a partner at my firm uh, a year and a half ago, probably. It was Christmas of 2021. And he told me, and it was, that was my goal. That was like a big goal when I joined this firm. I wanted to be a firm, or I wanted to be a partner. And, mm-hmm. uh, and I grinded. It took me 10 years, and I got there. And, uh, and he told me, and I came back to my office, and uh, I'd been working towards this goal. It was kind of like the last goal I had professionally as far as, like, now it's just enjoy the spoils and push my career, build right. build my team. But that was, like, the benchmark goal. So I hit it, and I remember coming back to my office and sitting down at my desk and going, can I rest now? And then being like, no, what's the next thing? <laughs> you know? And uh, I think that that can be healthy and unhealthy. Absolutely. And so hopefully, uh, anyway, well, hopefully you are, you, I, I, what brought that up is you said you're, you're as content as you've ever have been, still work to do, but I imagine that you're going to keep building and, and hopefully do a lot of good with, your, uh, with what you're doing. So it's, I, uh, hope, it's, I hope so. And, and if I'm killed by a bus tomorrow, I'm content enough where I am. You know? That's great. I think yeah. it was it was it was Billy Joel who I heard say this. He said that you know I don't try to be happy anymore. I just try to be content. Yeah. And I like that. I really like that. And I try to be content. Um, I don't always manage it. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of days I don't manage it whatsoever. But at least I'm not lying to myself and ingesting poison and in looking at depraved sexual imagery to try to convince myself everything's okay. Yeah. Well, that is definitely a lot better. Yeah. Yes. So, well, Mr. Shea, it's been, uh, it's been great to have you on. Um, this is the part where I'm supposed to tell people to subscribe. If you made it almost three hours, uh, congratulations. And, yep. uh, well, um, uh, you win the avatar award. Yeah. <laughs> Um, subscribe to the podcast uh, and, uh, you know, leave some comments if you have any questions or thoughts. Um, uh, really appreciated having you on. And, uh, as you, as you continue on, you, you I'm sure you're going to probably write more books or, or you're going to do talks. Uh, love to have you back and, and talk about what you're doing. So that'd be great. Yeah. So appreciate it. Thanks everybody for, for checking out. Uh, we've, we've still got a lot more uh, fun coming down the, the pipe in the next few weeks. So, uh, we'll, Hopefully see you again soon.